Good evening. On behalf of superheroes everywhere, oh, and superheroines, or super persons if you prefer, I bid you welcome. Ah, that I have your attention. We'll proceed. Welcome to Now Playing's DC Comics Team Up Retrospective Series. He calls my arrival the dawn of the superhero. I am not sure if I know what that means. Continuing our look at movies based on DC Comics characters, Arnie, Stewart, and Jacob will be reviewing Legends of the Superheroes. Ladies and gentlemen, the world's mightiest mortal. Justice League of America. We all need heroes in our lives. Sometimes we find them in the most unlikely places. Gen 13. Once the students become Gen Active, no one will be able to stop us. Not Lynch, not the government. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. League of what? There have been other times when a danger upon the world required the services of singular individuals. And Watchmen. And all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, Save us. And all whisper, No. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. That was naughty. Listener discretion is advised. Sounds cool. I kind of like the superhero stuff. It'll be just like, like a super friend. We discuss Watchmen, starring Malin Ackerman, Billy Crudup, Matthew Good, Jackie Earl Haley, Jeffrey Dean Morton, Patrick Wilson, directed Zack Snyder. This is Arnie, and I'm not podcasting with you. You're podcasting with me, Stuart in L.A. And this is the host that will never compromise his recommends, even in the face of Armageddon, Jacob. Dueling Rorschach voices. And I feel like I've been stuck podcasting with you after that Justice League of America, Legends of the Show. At least we got you some real movies the last couple of weeks here. And and this is the big one. This is. This is the realest of the real movies. I've said when we started with Legends of the Superheroes in this DC Teams compilation we've done, (laughs) if there's any movie likely of getting a green arrow... It's Watchmen. And I've been right. We have done four movies and had 12 red arrows. So <laughs> will this break the trend? Watchmen. Here is a rare case where I knew the graphic novel before the movie was ever made. What? Yep. Had you have read it before the movie? Yeah. Many years before there ever was a movie. Okay. You've got one up on me on this one then because I, as we discussed on yesterday's Books and Nachos, knew there was a Watchmen. Never had any interest in reading it until this movie came out. And this was around the time I got my first big screen TV. And to pay for it, I stopped seeing movies in theaters. I was very anxious to see Watchmen. That trailer that came out with the Smashing Pumpkins song gave me chills. I really wanted to see this movie, but I wasn't going to theaters ever. So I picked up the graphic novel and read it instead. <laughs> so you've seen the movie. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, there is streamlining, but there is... Uh... Maybe more similarities than you will expect from just about any other comic book adaptation. I gotta say, this was a polarizing decision to do this movie. It was controversial. I mean, Alan Moore hates every movie adaption, but even in the comic community, people are like, 
Watchmen. Like, there was a side of the comic community. You do not touch this comic and try to make it a movie. And I was on that side. Like, I saw it opening weekend, but more out of, like, just curiosity. I'm like, how could they do this? Like, I was there and watching it, but I didn't have a lot of hope for it going in. I know a lot of people were excited. I was not one of them. There is a word for this, and it was used often. Unfilmable. They said that about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, too, you know. Yes, exactly. There are certain (laughs) projects, which is not to say that they don't film them, but there are certain projects that come with the label unfilmable. And every now and then, there is a big success and someone's able to crack the code, but oftentimes it is a recipe for a hopefully brilliant disaster. You know, there's no doubt that if you're going to try and adapt this movie, you are going to make mistakes. You are not going to be able to take what is on the page and turn it into a movie. The recipe for disaster would be to simply say, oh, it's a graphic novel. Let's film it. Like, treat this like storyboards and we'll just make what we see into a movie. I think you're showing your hand. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what they did. Now, I have seen this movie for this review five times, counting the ones where Zack Snyder walks out in the middle of the movie to give me more behind the scenes. (laughs) This is the heavy burden of the comic book movie fan of us. I gotta ask you, Arnie, because you're gonna talk about all the cuts they did, and they filmed stuff that was never gonna come out in the theater. They did the pirate comic. I watched a documentary for Under the Hood. Like, where did they get the balls, basically, to just think that this was all gonna pay off, and, like, they were gonna do all this extra stuff in hopes that people were gonna gobble it up? Well, they'd been trying to make this movie for 23 years. Terry Gilliam was attached. I mean, he seems to be attached to every unfilmable project at some point or another. Well, Sam Hamm from Batman 89, he wrote a script. And it's crazy. It is actually very different than the comic. So maybe that's a good thing. But it sounds like the nightmare that every devotee of the book had. Like, where you were going to have, like, clear-cut villains and, like, standard fight you're gonna have this weird like time warp from dr manhattan where everyone realizes they're in a comic book like you talk about unfilmable they went for something crazy maybe it would have worked better than just filming the pages but yeah it's a complex work i mean re spent in the raw recording of books and nachos whatever was edited down to we spent two and a half hours talking about it and i feel like we could have gone even deeper like wow for someone to grasp the themes of all these different characters and try to boil this down to a film, you got to know how to adapt. And Terry Gilliam actually wanted to make this a five-hour miniseries where it would cost a million dollars a page to film. Yeah, I, I love some of the ideas that have been had here. Like back when Gilliam was going to do it, Arnold Schwarzenegger as Dr. Manhattan. Yes! Yes! <laughs> That's not an idea. <laughs> Oh, it was. It was considered. Well, doing what? Doing this story? I mean... Painting him blue? Wait, they did paint him blue for Batman and Robin, didn't they? Yeah, uh, okay. Well, uh, you're going to need more creativity than, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger will save this. And I would have loved to have seen Darren Aronofsky's take on this. He was hired to direct this back in the early 2000s. So that could have been a take because this is a lot about obsession and that seems to be his focus. But finally, in the mid-2000s, they got Zack Snyder, the man who will adapt anything and barely ever create an original film. Visionary director Zack Snyder, as he was 
lauded in the advertisements for this. He'd only done Dawn of the Dead and 300, and that's where he got visionary director. Because with 300, I don't really remember how I felt about the film, but I have that comic book work by Frank Miller. Like, he really did just film the pages for that, but it's it's a marvelous, beautiful-looking comic book. Like, it is one where you just want to make those pages come to life. Because there's not a whole lot more deeper than naked Greek dudes fighting Persians and, and, and trying to make a whole Middle East war and terrorism metaphor with it. Like that, that, it's all on the surface with 300. So, okay, go with Zack Snyder. That makes sense. Here, though, it's not surface material. But he did exactly what you said, Stuart. He had the graphic novel on set, told everybody to read it. And while doing every scene, that was pretty much their storyboards. Yeah. I, you know, I one time, you know, I was in film school. I one time had a producing class. And I definitely remember this teacher getting up there and going, you know, books, they're words. They can all be adapted. It's, you know, what's the difference? You know, if it's got words, you can put it on film. And I do not accept that. Some works of literature, and this is one of them, they're postmodern. They're about the medium itself. And there is no way to faithfully adapt it out of print. I mean, a big part of Watchmen is that it it takes a look at what used to be newspaper comic book characters that eventually blur the lines with the news itself. And to take that out of a printed medium, to take it away from graphic novels, is to lose something enormous already. So... That is a fool's errand to think that they can shoot this comic book as is. I mean, let's just tick it off why this is unfilmable. I think it's probably helpful to just remind people. One, it's an ambitious storyline, 50 years of American history, some of which is true, but some of which is going to end up in an alternative 1985 where Nixon is still president and America is about to have World War III with the Soviet Union. Tell me how that is relatable to a (laughs) film audience in 2009. Well, if they're 60, they might know who Nixon is. I mean, if they're us, we might get it. I'll go this far. The graphic novel has remained a bestseller, as we discussed on Books and Notches, and in print for 29 years. I think people still know who Nixon is. Forrest Gump worked 10 years before this. So I don't think that you have to shy away from these references in an American film. Nixon died just 15, 20 years ago. Here's the difference, though. We're in a post-9-11. Like, you have the war on terrorism. Now you want... People that that's what they know to go back and understand the Cold War. I I do feel like maybe you could adapt this, but you got to update it somehow. People have to care. They have to feel invested. I mean, I could invent an alternative Wild Wild West where Will Smith is riding around in a giant spider. They did that. Oh, did they? Well, (laughs) damn, I'll have to throw that script away. But can you make it good? (laughs) There's the alternate universe. Yeah. The point is... (laughs) Anyone can create alternative universes, but why would mainstream audiences invest in them? Why would an audience that wasn't born in 1985 want to see that storyline? And it can't be done cheaply. Another big factor here, it's going to be very expensive to produce something like this. It's going to be R-rated if you're faithful, which means no kids, no marketing tie-ins. 
This is pre-Deadpool R-rated, where it was still risky. It is always risky. I don't even think now it's a sure bet. Deadpool... Batman v Superman's gonna get an R-rated cut when it comes out on Blu-ray. I'm not saying they're not gonna jump on a bandwagon. That's what Hollywood does. But I don't think that the gold rush is now to make super NC-17 comic book movies. The average person also doesn't even know what Watchmen is. There is no brand familiarity. You know, you bring Superman, Spider-Man, Batman, to the screen, everyone has some mental image in their head and can go, oh, okay, I know what that is. I don't think most people on this earth know who the Watchmen are. I was into comics and I'd barely heard of them. When I heard Zack Snyder was making Watchmen, that meant as much to me as when I heard he was making 300, another comic I hadn't heard of. I think it's very telling that when that trailer came out, this comic started selling out, not just in Barnes and Noble, but in comic book stores. There was a, I'll say a generation of comic book fans that had passed this by and this got them to hear about it again. Like for me, it was always one of those comics in the background. Like you always knew Watchmen was considered the greatest comic book graphic novel ever. But I think there was a generation where they didn't get that marketing about Watchmen because this became a huge seller once the trailer came out. That trailer was amazing. I mean, I knew nothing about Watchmen, but when I saw that trailer with, I think it was the beginning is the end is the beginning, and with that song going, I immediately went to iTunes and bought the single. I was interested in the graphic novel. You don't have to have a familiarity with the source material necessarily if you market it well, and I think this had a great marketing run coming up to its release. I mean, of course, I was at Comic-Con in 2008. This was inescapable when they were presenting there. Yeah, they had Archimedes there, yeah. Yeah, it was huge. Okay, comic book Comic-Con. I'm talking about average people. I'm talking about people that don't go to Comic-Con, that don't, you know, read comic books. You know, moviegoers, ticket buyers. I think the average person these days follows Comic-Con. It's covered in mainstream magazines, Entertainment Weekly. 2009, though, was different. Yeah, you're inflating the culture of 2016 with where we were at a decade ago. No, we weren't there with that. And again, I don't think I'm wrong on this. Most people don't know who the Watchmen are, and they would be more inclined to see a superhero movie with characters they've at least heard of or could pick out from a lineup. I mean, to look at these guys, you might think they're ripoffs of Batman, Superman, or what have you. It makes it look illegitimate to some people. And then Alan Moore is going to do you no favor. He's not going to promote it. And his name doesn't open any doors from the guy that brought you League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and From Hell. Those movies flopped. So I can see why you would use the word unfilmable. What are you going to get at? The real question to ask is why risk filming this? And yeah, I can only think of a couple reasons. One, Zack Snyder is this visionary guy that has done 300. Put finger quotes around visionary. That is his reputation. That is not my opinion. That's the marketing. And critics claim that this is a piece of literature that elevates the art form. So, of course, you'd want to try to make the best comic book of all time into the best comic book movie of all time. And then I also think that the times have caught up with the idea of dark superheroes like Dark Knight, you know, and even Incredibles. I think Hancock came out around that time, which 
you know, was about a bum that was a superhero. I think some of the ideas in this movie had already filtered out into other things. And I think you didn't necessarily need to make Watchmen to have some of these ideas already out there. So it had already been road tested by some properties like Dark Knight, Batman Begins. So you're calling this comic homework that's unnecessary because it's already in the cultural zeitgeist. The same argument I've used about several movies and been lambasted for. Uh, what I'm saying is that the reason why you would trust making this is because it's already been road tested and it's already been a big success. Dark Knight was a big hit. So, okay, maybe this can play. Maybe we are sophisticated enough that this will work. Oh, you can't say that Dark Knight was the impetus for this, though, because this was well into production before Dark Knight hit the screen. Well, I gotta ask you, Arnie, you, you've watched all these extras. Look, I've had my say about Zack Snyder. Maybe he's genuinely a nice guy and he's trying to make the best films he can. But I read this interview he gave about Watchmen and he's like, I just, I hope someday Alan Moore puts this in his DVD player in London and watches it because I really think he's going to like it. And Alan Moore scoffed because he's never lived in London. He lives in Northampton. And he's like, no chance in hell this will ever touch my DVD player. But I got this like sincerity from Zack Snyder. Like he felt like he was really doing Watchmen a service with this film. He was trying the hardest he could. Yeah, to the point that Dave Gibbons, who is the artist and co-creator of Watchmen, was on set helping with this and did a commentary for it where he had nothing but positives to say for it because everything he had ever drawn was interpreted literally. Why would you hate <laughs> something that worships you? Well, and that is, I think, the real question is that is something that is carbon copy the best way of immortalizing something. I think there is this idea that Hollywood fucks things up, that when they adapt things, they make changes and it ruins the original properties. And a lot of times there can be good examples of this proven. You can say, yeah, they changed that to, so that it's a sexy young person and that isn't right for that character. Or add Tom Sawyer so there's an American in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. We'll throw in a lot of action where no action is needed because we don't trust people to get the more sedate tone. I get that Hollywood does screw up a lot of things, not just comic book things, but a lot of things. But I also believe when uh, property is hard to follow, esoteric, I mean, this movie lives off of very meta references. You owe it to the source material to find a theme and a version that is concrete that people can grab onto and follow and feel. Which means, in my understanding, when reading this novel, and I've done it twice now, you would never dream of telling the story the same way because reading this novel is not the same thing as experiencing a movie. You're not going to feel it the same way. With a comic book, you can reread things, you can flip back the pages, you can take time in between issues, you process it a different way. But keep in mind, this is being done in 2009, the age of the Blu-ray. I think that this was intended to be a movie that people would flip back and forth through the same way you can a comic. Take it home. As Jacob mentioned, they didn't just do the film in three different cuts, each getting longer and including more stuff straight from the page. Alan Moore, as we discussed on Books and Nachos, filled these things with back matter, like the autobiography Under the Hood from the first Night Owl. They did it like a behind-the-music TV special called Under the Hood. 
I will say that that is the best extra I watched was that Under the Hood. I actually kind of like that fake 60 minute style production. Yeah. And they incorporated some of the backstory from Silk Spectre into bonus features. They were just intent on creating a home video experience. I honestly think this wasn't intended for theatrical viewing, but to get the budget they did, of course it's going to go to theaters. Uh, That is quite a possibility, which makes you feel like making a movie then is the wrong choice. If, If the idea was always to tell something more expansive where you have to go to the website or whatever, I feel like if they had waited, yeah, four or five years, it would never have been a movie. It would have been an HBO miniseries or even a, a TV series itself. And what's weird is that a few years before this, they did Watchmen, the motion comic. This was something they experimented with in the 2000s, where they take a comic and they do that real minimalist, like, Hanna-Barbera motion. Marvel still shits one of those out of recorder. Do they still do those? Ugh. Yeah. I remember, it felt like they were pushing that before digital comics, like, found a way to come out. They're pushing these motion comics. So they put out a version of Watchmen that was literally just the page with some motion in the words. I watched it. The words part of that was it it was all done by one person it was like an audiobook he did all the voices he did all the narration (laughs) but i think that saying that this shouldn't be a film is to take a narrow definition of what film is this was to become an experience on film i don't think that having something that has webisodes that combine with film that combine with websites that combine with bonus features is necessarily a bad thing though it can be an unfulfilling theatrical experience if you're not willing to do that extra homework and i don't think stewart's saying this shouldn't be a film but you gotta radically change it you you gotta find what is the soul of watchman what is its core and try to rebuild it i mean for me like I said in the books and nachos, Watchmen is a comic about a comic. And I feel like if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that postmodern thing on film, you got to take the history of superheroes on film and do a f- comic film about comic films. Like, I feel like that would be a core element of bringing a theatrical Watchmen adaptation. You got to do something different. I think Zack Snyder did that, but I think we need to get into it to discuss. I definitely think he added some spins, some references to other comic book movies and abridged. I mean, he had to abridge. This thing took me so much longer to read than it took me to watch this movie five times. But let's just start. There are three cuts of this. There's the theatrical cut that I don't know really anybody stands behind it. (laughs) It wasn't what Zack Snyder wanted. There were studio-mandated cuts and things. Then there was the director's cut, which came out on Blu-ray and was pretty close with the home release and added about 20 more minutes. Then there's the ultimate cut that adds 40 additional minutes on top of that which is the entire black freighter motion comic which they put out i remember when this came out there was a lot of people crying what do you mean they're doing it without the black freighter stuff you can't tell watchmen without a big pirate story and so they put out a motion comic while this was in theaters again that whole experience but then they intercut it in the ultimate cut i've seen all three of them and i've seen the director's cut and the Ultimate cut twice each. What did you guys see? You know, I did see this, like I said, opening weekend. I saw that theatrical cut. I was planning on watching that again this time just because it's the shortest one. I did see some of our fans, though, post on Facebook. You got to talk about the director's cut. It adds so much more. So 
I bit the bullet or the extra 20 minutes and decided to watch that director's cut. I also watched the Under the Hood feature and the Black Freighter, which came out also as its own DVD. So it sounds like you saw the whole thing, but you broke it up into different experiences. He's still missing some pieces, though. Yeah, there's still scenes that were left out from the ultimate cut. Wow. Okay. Well, I saw the movie opening weekend whenever it came out. And uh, so I saw the theatrical experience, but for this viewing, my second time seeing it, I got the Blu-ray director's cut. And Stuart, you had read Watchmen before you saw it the first time? Yeah. I've never been a newbie on this. That's why this one is weird. I have never been a newbie to Watchmen. Because I really do wonder, how would this film come across to someone who never read the book is it understandable but i guess we won't have that perspective uh it's not my perspective my guess is no but you know i also think that like a lot of head trippy movies like 2001 or something maybe you don't need to understand it to enjoy it so maybe the movie works just as sort of a mind warp crazy thing but i can't believe you know i don't totally understand what's going on in this movie with the way that it presents the information. But I guess that's why we're here to go through it. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot and then we will try to parse out what Zack Snyder has done to Watchmen. Watchmen is an alternate history story set in 1985. It's like the 1985 we knew, but history has been changed thanks to the inclusion of superheroes. Not truly super, these costume vigilantes were inspired by old comic books and took to the New York streets fighting crime. And around 1939 and 1940, several of them got together to form a team they called the Minutemen. These teammates were Captain Metropolis, Silk Spectre, Hooded Justice, Night Owl, the first one, Silhouette, Dollar Bill, Mothman, and Newcomer the Comedian. But the team didn't last long as the heroes were often covering up hidden personality defects. For example, after a party in 1940, the comedian tries to rape Silk Spectre. That generation of heroes grew old and many died, and new heroes took up the mantle. Dan Dryberg, played by Patrick Wilson, took on the name of Night Owl after the original Hollis Mason retired. Dan fought crime with several gadgets and his flying ship. Silk Spectre had a daughter, Lori Jupiter, played by Malin Ackerman. The girl is pushed by her mother into crime fighting as the second Silk Spectre. The world's smartest man is Adrian Veidt, played by Matthew Good. His love of Egyptian lore had him take on the heroic persona of Ozymandias. Jackie Earl Haley plays Walter Kovacs, a boy birthed by a prostitute who lived in foster homes and grew up to be an antisocial and violent hero with a strong sense of right and wrong. He puts on a mask that alters its shape and becomes Rorschach, a lethal vigilante. But the world's first true superhero is Dr. Manhattan, played by Billy Crudup. After an accident in his science lab, John Osterman turns into Dr. Manhattan, a blue being capable of controlling things at their atomic level. With Dr. Manhattan's influence, the U.S. is the most dominant of global powers— Manhattan even helped us win the Vietnam War, which kept President Nixon in office well into the 80s. Nixon negotiated from a position of power, keeping the world at bay with the threat of Manhattan. But despite this, Nixon outlaws masked vigilantes in the 70s, but keeps Manhattan and the comedian on the government payroll. But Russia is chafing under this, and a skirmish in Afghanistan is about to push the country to World War III. And all that serves as the backdrop for our story. The comedian is murdered in his apartment one night, thrown out of his penthouse window. 
Rorschach, who never followed the law against vigilantes, investigates, believing there to be a killer hunting down old superheroes. The investigation ends up bringing Night Owl 2 out of retirement. And the same person who killed the comedian also causes Dr. Manhattan to leave Earth by insinuating his powers have caused horrible cancer to those around him. Upset, Manhattan takes up residence on Mars. When his girlfriend Lori, the second Silk Spectre, leaves him and starts to sleep with Dan, Manhattan feels his last tie to humanity is broken. He doesn't care if we all destroy ourselves in nuclear war. And with Manhattan gone, that looks very possible as Russian aggression escalates. But Rorschach and Night Owl discover the person behind all of this is Ozymandias. The smart Adrian knew nuclear war was inevitable, so he set the stage. Then to avert the war, he sets off an explosion in major cities across the globe, framing Dr. Manhattan for the murder of 15 million people. And Ozzy was right. This galvanizes the world against Dr. Manhattan, creating a historic global unity. But Rorschach refuses to play along, wanting to expose Veidt's atrocities. To keep the peace, Rorschach is killed by Dr. Manhattan, who understands that what Adrian did worked to stop nuclear war. Burdened with this secret, Dan and Lori remain a couple, adventuring in a world without many enemies, but Rorschach's journal ends up in the hands of the right-wing rag the New Frontiersman. Their editor reads his tale as credits roll. It's a murder mystery at heart. Yeah, and I, I wonder, I mean, when I heard they were adapting it, I thought, I assumed they would update it to modern day and that, yes, it would be a noir story in which we would follow probably Rorschach, one character through a mystery, ultimately finding out who did it and why. I feel like the murder plot kind of gets lost in this movie. It does begin as so much of this adaptation does, with the first issue, the way that Alan Moore presents it, with the comedian being thrown out of his window. But do we ever really know why, or is it even clear to people how or who killed him? I would say yes. First of all, though, I'd like to say we don't start the comic with comedian being thrown out the window. No, no, no. We don't start the comic with a 300 Matrix-style battle going on. Like, that is one of my criticisms for, like, this is supposed to be the antithesis of superhero stuff, but every action scene, they add action scenes, is just done in the most stylistic way to glorify the violence, when I feel like that's something Alan Moore wouldn't want done. That is one of the points of The Watchmen, is to fight against that urge to see these stylized battles, but that's how this opens up. And that's what Zack Snyder's going to bring, is that 300 element. And I gotta say, this opening fight, I think it works, and it's good to have here, even if it's not in the comic, as a way of gripping your audience. This is not going to be an action-oriented superhero film. If you're coming, wanting this to be The Dark Knight, or wanting this to be Spider-Man or X-Men, well, maybe the first two X-Men, you actually wouldn't be disappointed. But most superhero movies, you'll be disappointed. The action is anemic. This gives you a way of feeling like you're getting a fight in your comic book movie. But man, the styles makes no sense to me. Like when the killer, who we know at the end is Ozymandias, picks up the comedian and starts to throw him. And for no apparent reason, it goes into slow motion and then it goes back to real time. I can't say that I understand even why he made those choices other than, and this would be cool. Watch 300. That's why he made those choices. We'd have to find out why he made those choices in 300 to understand why he made them here. I've seen 300 twice. Please don't make me watch it again. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. We're, we're not putting that 
that one on the books. Those that have asked for 300, the short review, I didn't like it. Me either. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. And I am not holding Zack Snyder to that standard. I'm not going to come into this arms folded saying he made a movie I didn't like. So therefore, I'm not going to accept this vision. True. I'm just saying in this scene, not taking 300, I actually liked the way he did the action in 300. I think 300 is gorgeous, but it's not a good movie. Yeah, agreed. I like the visual style and I really love the oxymoron of Unforgettable, this very serene song playing in the background with this violence but as far as why he's making it so stylized and why we're going slow-mo when the face is getting hit and why the comedian has a giant wooden phallus next to his television i don't understand any of that it's not even a question that i would have this is the way Zack snyder films action that's fine what i would ask is what is my investment do i want this guy not to be killed i don't know we actually find out very quickly that he was a pretty loathsome dude that killed Kennedy and is behind some horrible atrocities. So who do I want to win in this fight? It begins the problem of having no emotional investment in what I'm watching. And that's what I'm wondering. You bring up what is the best part of the film for me, these opening credit scenes. And I I don't know if we discussed this before, but I had to confirm it. I'm like, Zack Snyder came from music videos, didn't he? And yes, he did. Like He did? Okay, I did not yes. remember that. I, I had to look it up because the best part of this movie is the music video he has put to Bob Dylan, where he's showing all these, sometimes they're frozen, sometimes they're barely slow motion moving, these clips of these characters. But like, it's hard for me to know because I was fam- so familiar with the source material. Would you get that this person who was just killed is the same guy shooting JFK in the opening credits? I think so. I did not. Oh. i didn't think that that made a whole lot of sense i'll tell you this though knowing that Zack snyder comes from music he and i if we ever got together we should never discuss movies he and i just won't see eye to eye on it except for maybe his remake of dawn of the dead but if he and i hung out i think we'd have the same album collections we'd be like (laughs) oh my god you own that I own that. I thought I was the only one who had Billy Vanilli still. I mean, his music choices in this are just my taste top to bottom. Two Leonard Cohen songs in the director's cut. Two. Yeah, I do feel like at times he's pulling what, like, Forrest Gump, the movie, felt like a big music video at times, like trying to sell the soundtrack to baby boomers. And I do feel like that applies to this movie at at times as well. And why didn't they make it that way? Why didn't they force gump this? Why didn't we follow the progression of superheroes over time like we did Forrest? This is essentially a montage. And I don't know that a lot of this will make sense. It sets a mood. You're going to pick up details. Yeah. Why do you show Sally Jupiter pregnant and stage it like The Last Supper? I don't know. There's no reason. There's no payoff. More to the point, who's Sally Jupiter to anyone at this point? (laughs) We don't have any connection to any of these characters. They're telling us things we're going to need to know later. They're giving us a quick history that we can then tie into a story that is going to come after these credits end. And I agree. These credits are good. They're strong. They set a mood. You want to know what's going on. I guess what I would say to that is, why would you not consider making this a chronological story? Why limit it to a montage when we 
might actually appreciate it more seeing these people change and grow and become who they're going to be in 1985 step by step. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing that you have to go back and watch a film a second time to get another layer of it. I said in my book review of Watchmen, like the second time and the third time I read it, I got a lot more than that first viewing. That's that's a sign of a work of art. But I feel like this opening credits, why they look beautiful, now that I've seen this a second time, do they add anything to what I'm going to see in this film? I think they do for me. And I think I, again, seen the movie six times total now. <laughs> I get more every time. I catch things more every time. But the first couple times I watched it, what I got out of this is it's setting me up for the alternate history. I don't necessarily get who Sally Jupiter is, and I don't necessarily get what all of the personal connections are. What I get is that in the 40s, there were superheroes, and then they got gunned down. But that history changed, that flower power was gunned down by the military, that we have a different history here. It's setting up the world and introducing us to the Watchmen. Yeah, I, I, oh, my, my, my sphincter clenched a little bit when you called them the Watchmen, but they do call them that in the film. That's not the team name, but okay, they do that in the film. But it should be, actually. I feel like that was a mistake of Moore. He needed to call them the Watchmen in the 60s. Yeah, if you call them the crime busters, the busting would be the laughing in the theater. This, I think they should have always been called the Watchmen. Zack Snyder, point to you. So <laughs> that's what these credits do for me, is set up this alternate history in a way that is very Forrest Gumpish to me. But that, I mean, what the scene that drives it home is when we have Silhouette steal the kiss from that sailor in Times Square on V-Day after World War II. That's saying right there that these heroes changed history. But they weren't always like, because soon after that, we see the two of them dead in bed with the word whores on, written in their blood. So Lesbian whores, yeah, called out for their homosexuality. Yeah, but history's really not changing. It's worth pointing out that, for the most part, things are happening as we understand them. Kennedy is shot at Dealey Plaza, and we go to Vietnam, and there is a Soviet Union, and Castro, and, you know, even Studio 54. It's not a butterfly effect. There's not like they change something and we're living in a radically different world. Nixon gets elected to a third term. The only thing that I can think of that is concrete is that we still have Nixon in 1985, which is confusing for people in 2009 that were not born in 1985. They may or may not understand that Nixon wasn't president at that time. You may or may not recognize Nixon, even if you lived during his presidency. These prosthetics are not good. Like, it's distracting. I'll say that the prosthetics are hit and miss sometimes they're very good sometimes they're really bad and this nixon looks like he stepped out of genesis's land of confusion video <laughs> there's a reference that. that if you yeah. don't know nixon you're sure as shit not getting <laughs> Now, the reason why it was Nixon in the comic book was because the comic book was published around 1985 and Nixon's Watergate scandal would have been a little over 10 years old. And that would have been ironic to think that, my God, imagine if he had held on to power and what would that world look like? But to be this far removed from Watergate and, for that matter, the Soviet Union, these conflicts feel dispassionate. There's no stakes to it. 
We did feel like we were on the brink of nuclear war in 1985. Now that doesn't feel like the world that we're in. And that's what I'm saying. Do you give this a post 9-11 spin? Do you make this about terrorism? They recreated the World Trade Center and they linger on those buildings multiple times in this film. Yep. Do you feel like, and look, as much as I love Watchmen, the comic book, I do feel with the movie, maybe you do take some risk and you make this about terrorism instead of the Cold War. It would make it more contemporary. You could argue that it's not the most important thing about Watchmen and we want we want to keep this in that world. Then it's your responsibility to find a way to make these stakes feel exciting. You got to feel connected in some way. And I guess, yeah, we get little interspersed moments with Nixon in a war room from Dr. Strangelove talking about how he's going to escalate nuclear war. But by and large, I don't think we ever understand this conflict between Soviet Union and the United States. I think that to say you can't include Nixon in a period piece is to cater only to the lowest common denominator film goer. And that's something that usually I would think you to rally against, Stuart. It feels like pandering. But I think what we're saying is if you're adapting this, do you make it a period piece or do you try to make it contemporary? I think so. I think that if you're going to adapt this, one of the cruxes of the novel is the nuclear war. I don't think that any terrorist plot has ever threatened global annihilation the way the Cold War did. And so I think that that's a must have. And perhaps it's because I'm a child of the 80s. But I really go for this. I really like the setting it of 1985. I said this on our books and nachos, and I say it for the movie as well. This feels to me like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Now that we're 30 years past 85, the technology is further than it's been than at the time. We're very far out of place. But it's an alternate history story. That one went steampunk. This one goes more sci-fi. But the two have a lot in common in that way. And I really go with the setting of this and the inclusion of the political references. Well, it must be because you were born in that era, because you really didn't go with the steampunk world of 1899. I've never liked steampunk, though. But so you can imagine that some kid today wouldn't want to go to some alternative 1985. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. Let me be clear. I'm just saying that you're limiting your audience by sticking this closely to the setting. You're suddenly making this feel very, very specific, and it's not going to have resonance to a large movie-going populace. I don't think that's lowest common denominator, but I do think if you do the math, that means you're not going to make your money back. I don't necessarily think that. Again, Forrest Gump relied on a lot of historical knowledge. If you tell the story right, you don't even need to know Nixon is. You should be able to get the story. I think you do get the story that the president is a warmonger. If you knew nothing about Nixon, you'd still get it from the way the story is told. What blows my mind, yeah, they have the doomsday clock and it's like five to midnight. I had no idea that was a real thing until like recently. I think we're actually closer to doomsday than they are starting in this movie because of global warming and that. But this is like an actual concept. But yeah, I mean, they try to do things to explain the state. Again, it's hard for me to tell how successful they are because I'm so close to the source material. We're in the source material, so I'm not going to you know, keep debating this point. I'm just saying when you're looking at adapting this work by choosing to go this close, I think you're making something that's harder for people in 2009 to relate to. And I'm not saying go terrorist either. I agree with Arnie. There needs to be global stakes. The book is ultimately about an escalation of liberal and conservative 
conservative animosity. And Nixon represents, you know, and Kissinger represent the most America got to that kind of brutality on the right. And then you got all the peacenik stuff that's mocked on the left. I mean, it's certainly more prevalent in the book. You can find more examples, but that's really the clash here. His socialism, Soviet versus conservative America in 1985, which, again, when you're reading the novel when it first published, would feel exceedingly contemporary. Again, my thought would have been, wow, the funny papers at some point melded with the headlines, and suddenly you can't determine comics from reality. I didn't get that from the graphic novel, but here... Again, it's just how the opening credits go. We are right back in the murder mystery on the other side of them and introduced to Rorschach. The whole reason I saw this movie, because I read the graphic novel and I didn't want to see the movie anymore. I really didn't. <laughs> I got the Smashing Pumpkins song. I'm good. But Jackie Earl Haley was going to be the new Freddy. <laughs> One of our early retrospectives. I'm like, well, I want to see what this guy can do. I didn't know Jackie Earl Haley. And it's like he had a brief moment with this movie, Nightmare on Elm Street and Shutter Island. He had a brief moment in the cultural zeitgeist and he still works but i don't hear about him anymore but he was the reason i watched this is to see what the new freddy could bring and he's the best thing about the movie i mean i think everyone agrees that when you see this movie he's the character you latch on to he's the one with real menace he's the one that works in the movie way a lot of these characters are just sort of posing like they do in the comics but you don't feel their passion i get it with jackie and his face is hidden for much of this movie and i still get where he's at i I feel like they could have built this whole movie around him, going person to person, and he could be a central character, a focal point, something to ground all of this craziness. Yeah, it, what's so weird, and you can listen to books and nachos for the whole discussion, but like, I feel Rorschach is like the last character Moore wants people to latch onto, but it's the easiest, especially for those who like are just into superhero comics, and for those who watch this movie, it feels like, yeah, Rorschach is the hero, even though he's the psychotic murderer that, like, the Ian Randian objectivist, like, that is the one you're championing in this film, for better or for worse, and I do think Haley does a good job, like, just acting with his face covered. Acting is not something I'm going to compliment a lot of people on in this film, but Haley is good when the mask is off or when the mask is on. Yeah, he's amazing in this. And you're right, Stuart. He is my favorite character here, even if I do recognize him as quite morally objectionable in many regards. But he comes in and he's got the monologue and he's got the awesome lines about the politicians and the whores and the abattoir of retarded children. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but yet it's gripping because it's poetic and he's investigating a murder. So is he a good guy? Is he not? Like so many characters, we get right away. He's somewhere in the middle. I think this movie works best when it is around Rorschach. I'll show that much of my hand. He drops out of the second hour of this film quite a bit to the film's detriment. Yeah, you've never needed to leave him, honestly. If you look at detective noir movies, which this thing is obviously predicated on, and detective comics, right? DC Comics, that was sort of the origins to it. you got to keep following the investigator. You can't go wandering off and follow love story plots and other things. You need to keep us invested in who's killing the old superheroes. I feel like that's a mistake that any filmmaker should have corrected about this storyline. I felt that was a mistake in the comic, too. Yeah, I mean... We 
there's pacing problems in that comic, but there are times where Moore and Gibbons are so just poetic and so great at their craft as a comic, I'm entertained even when the story is slowed down. Here, though, I feel like those beats when, okay, let's go, let's get it going, let's, why are we stopping to see this backstory or that backstory? Let's get back to this murder mystery. Yeah, yeah. you. the reliance on flashback is essential in the comic book, but deadly in this movie the be keep taking out of the action and to see the past and not to be in this present is to minimize whatever tension there is about this present i agree i think that if you listen to our books and nachos you heard alan moore said they sold a 12 issue miniseries then when they plotted it they had enough material for six and had to pad it well that's padding that you could have cut out and what's really mind-blowing to me is that Snyder did streamline this some. I mean, in the comic, Rorschach visits Moloch three times. In the movie, only twice. You know, there's stuff that's streamlined, and yet it still drags so much. And he still pads it. Like, when Rorschach goes to investigate the comedian's death, I don't know if we know he's the comedian, but he's going to open that secret closet and find all his outfit and his guns. Like, he's going to add this whole, again, another action scene where Rorschach's going to fight the cops and then have to escape them, where in the comic, you know, it just cuts. There, There isn't, maybe because Snyder understands he's got to give this to the audience, but I feel it's weird that you want to do this artsy superhero story, but then you're trying to go back to these conventions to make it traditionally and conventionally entertaining. Action is a crutch, and in a superhero movie, it's expected, so you write an adaptation that introduces that at logical points, and at a point where you actually have some investment in who you want to win in that battle. Many times in this movie, when it's exploding in action, I don't have any dogs in the fight. I don't care who wins or loses, because they haven't properly invested where my alliances should be with the characters but I like Rorschach and I want him to get away from those cops and I want to know what the deal is with the button and I still want to know what the deal is <laughs> with the button we have a happy face button that is splattered in blood now when I originally read the comic I believed this was the insignia for the Watchmen group of the 1960s and then when I reread it I realized there was no Watchmen group and this was only something worn in the later years by the comedian Presumably, ironically, because it's sort of a hippie logo developed, you know, peace, uh, love, have a nice day kind of thing. He wore it ironically, right? But this is his insignia. Yeah, it's the comedian's insignia. It was a pin he wore. And I got to say, the first time I ever read Watchmen, I'm like, why is he the comedian? I still don't get it. Like, that was one of the biggest mysteries to me. I get it now. But yeah, he. I think he wore it ironically. He has it on in Vietnam. And he was wearing it, I guess, when he got murdered. And that's why it's got that. It's down in the sewer there, that Rorschach finds. Plus, this whole thing is about clock. You know, Watchmen. It's not just about who's watching what. We got to have a huge monologue from Dr. Manhattan about watches. And there's the doomsday clock that Jacob brought up. And the blood is splattered at 5 till 12. You know, it's all about clocks and symbolism and blood on a smiley face. Ironic. The positioning, the clock is ticking down to where the doomsday clock hits zero and we all die. Right. There's a lot of free association between imagery in the in the comic book. That's one thing that's that's heavy, that certain shapes and things have a symmetry, you know, I, that you, you see patterns in it. And 
By seeing repeated patterns, it asks you to make connections in your mind, which may or may not be important. I mean, that's why it's postmodern in that way, is that you're able to come up with all different ideas about what's going on. Here, I feel like some of that could be streamlined. Some of it is. Some of it could be even more streamlined because it creates more confusion than allows for multiple interpretations. I think that this movie would be helped by having more clarity and less ambiguity. Agreed, yet if you're trying to tell Moore's story, and I think that's the right impulse if you're making Watchmen, part of it is about the moral ambiguity and trying to decide who is right. Are the actions Ozymandias is going to take the right thing to do? Is Rorschach right with his form of lethal justice. No, no, and I, I think that is important to do. I am not saying sell out the characters and give me clear-cut good guys and bad guys. I'm saying let me know who these characters are because I feel like I wander through the story not really understanding them. Now, I do think my frame of reference for this movie and probably the frame of reference for Zack Snyder and probably the frame of reference for Alan Moore is Blade Runner. I do feel like they were really thinking about that kind of noir, detective, future dystopia where it's a recognizable world that's gone to shit and there are these superior beings caught in the middle. There's even like a floating elephant, Gunga Diner, that really made me think of that geisha zeppelin that kind of goes through Los Angeles. Moore did call out 1984, George Orwell, Big Brother. So yeah, that, that kind of dystopia, you're right. And you get it here. The neon, the rain, the soundtrack, uh, the way that yeah, it cuts into advertisements and commercialism, and then it's contrasted with this dark, scary world. I, I just feel like, okay, I like Blade Runner a lot, so I'm just going to appreciate it like Blade Runner and just follow this mystery as much as I can and just be okay with the fact that I'm not going to have a lot of feelings about any of the characters. And I'll say when it is focusing on the murder mystery, when Jackie Earl Haley is pursuing the investigation, this movie works for me. And that's a good first act there, you know? He goes and visits Night Owl, who is Patrick Wilson under some mostly believable prosthetics. He... Oh, I heard he put on weight for this. He did. I, there's definitely some prosthetics going on to age him, though. Yeah, th they try to keep all the same actors and just use prosthetics to age them or make them younger, for better or for worse. Uh, there, there's some, we, we called out Nixon, but there's some other bad examples when they try to age characters that they should have just got someone older. Now, Patrick Wilson, we discussed him with the Insidious series, and here he is again, an actor who I always confuse with Will Arnett, and yeah. yet Yes, thank I you. keep wishing was Will Arnett. I don't know if Will Arnett, I don't know. I've never seen him in a dramatic role. I've seen a lot more Patrick Wilson than I've ever seen Will Arnett. So I, I don't really know Will Arnett. <laughs> but here's the thing that I feel like should have been more established in these early scenes. These guys were partners. They worked side by side busting gangs. And then at some point they split up. I'd like to know why. I'd like to see that tension. I'd like to have them to have Chemistry, connection. I mean, that's what you need to do with this movie. They say a lot about the Keen Act of 77, which was the law that outlawed vigilantism, which is why the Watchmen broke up. They pay a lot of lip service. I picked it up this time watching it. Again, when I watched this on 
in theaters, I'm just like trying to keep up with it. And that's the difference between a film and a comic. A comic I can take at my pace. Right. In this movie, I got to keep up with this movie now. When you're dropping all this exposition, it's just hard to keep up with it. It means you're not emotionally investing in the moment. You're just processing information. It's data dumping. And yeah, I don't know that if I had never read the comic that I would really understand why superheroes were banned. We do see, it's a little bit later at the funeral, a flashback in which we see the comedian and Night Owl treat some rioters very badly. And that's kind of all that we get about the conflict between superheroes policing regular peoples. The comedian just says, oh, there's something coming through Congress. That's going to stop this. Yeah, they also have a newscaster, at least in one of the cuts, talking about it, even before the comedian does. It's repeated, but I can't say that it's something to absorb when there's so much going on with so many characters. The first time I watched it, I got that they were former partners. I didn't much care why they split up. You know, he says, what happened to those days? You quit. That's all I needed. Night Owl is retired and gotten fat and lazy, and Rorschach's still out there crime-busting, Jacob. <laughs> That's what he does. He's, he's not watching anyone. Yeah, but he's trying to protect him. Rorschach is reaching out to his old partner and he's telling Dan that the person that killed Comedian may also know that your night owl may be trying to kill you. He may try to come for me, that he may be picking up all of the Watchmen now that we're defenseless and living anonymously in retirement. Yeah, Rorschach's the one who believes there's someone going after mask and i do love that you know dan's like don't you think you're being a little paranoid is that what they're saying about me but he's the one that believes there might be some conspiracy against former superheroes i'm torn about jumping too far ahead in the story but i do want to say right now that i do not understand why the comedian was murdered through the comic you understood that the villain had him killed because he knew too much he was starting to talk i'm not sure if that's clear here here's the thing there's a lot of talking in this and they will tell us things but i feel like in the comic they showed us oh here was this island and this is what he found and like but here we're just going to be told and i want to see show me don't tell me i started watching this since i knew i had to watch it so many times i started watching it before christmas i spaced it out so i didn't have some kind of torture experience i only finished reading the graphic novel after my fourth watching only when I read the graphic novel did I finally understand what the hell was going on. They talk about an island and a list. I didn't get it from this movie. I don't even think it's in this movie. They never show an island or anything. It's just the comedian. You'll see him crying at Moloch's place, and then you'll have Adrian explain a few things. It's just all told to you. And it could have been a, such an easy fix if instead of an island, he'd said Antarctica. If he'd seen something about Voight's Antarctic base, Karnak, then... There would be no question. Okay, there was a list. It's the list of people who get cancer. And there's this Antarctic base. The fact that he says an island to the end, I'm like, what island? Right. It gets back to that pirate comic, that Tales from the Black Freighter, which, you know, Alan Moore puts throughout the entire Watchmen graphic novel, mostly for atmosphere, I think, but also because the writer of one of these pirate stories is a part of the bad guy's team. But none of that matters for this movie. And so I'm totally shocked. Arnie, you're telling me that Zack Snyder filmed this and that there's a cut of this movie where we see pirate stuff? Well, he didn't film it. It was animated with some extra filmed scenes, because in the comic, and we talk about this at length in Books and Nachos, but there's a pirate comic that someone is reading in the Watchmen comic itself. So it's a 
comic in a comic. That's like 16 comics. <laughs> but do they actually explain that in this ultimate cut? Like, I know they release Black Freighter as its own thing, but in the ultimate cut, do they explain that you're seeing a comic at that point? It just jumps you into it. They don't have the kid, like, reading it? It doesn't zoom in on the page? Not at first, which is just freaking weird. Like, your very first introduction to the pirate story is you're seeing live action and then you are in a motion comic for a little bit and then it cuts out and you see the kid reading it and he's talking to the newsman none of that was in the theatrical a little of it was in the director's and in this ultimate cut there's a lot more that talks about this kid reading a comic there and then we cut to they called it a motion comic it's not a motion comic it's a cartoon a motion comic they literally have still panels that they have move a little bit. Marvel does a ton of those. But this is a cartoon that represents the comic book that this kid is reading during the movie. And so adding about 45 minutes or so to the running length is a cartoon wow. narrated by Gerard Butler because he'd been promised a role in Watchmen and they couldn't find another place to put him. <laughs> okay. And he's got a great voice for it. I mean, he has gravitas, but it's all a cartoon. I think if you're going to do it, that kid should have been watching a cartoon. You know, he shouldn't have been reading a comic and then we cut to a cartoon. That makes no sense. Well, I did notice in the director's cut that they added some footage of that new stand. And you do see that comic at one point. They don't go into it in the director's cut. But it looks so weird, like different lighting, a different set. What was going on with this extra footage, this new stand stuff? It looks like it was shot. I dare not even say second unit. So much as with a camera they bought at Best Buy and had a few PAs film because it is lit differently. It is totally different. It feels out of place. It's jarring. It is like just totally different film style. Maybe one was film and one was digital. They didn't go into the details as to what cameras they used, but it feels so flat that what shocked me is Jackie Earl Haley shows up for one of the scenes, and Rorschach Shrink is in a couple of the scenes. They actually have actors from the movie cameoing in this extra footage, but it feels like a different production. If it wasn't for the set being so identical, I'd think it was even filmed later. And this is also mixing pirate cartoon stuff, too, or is that all in one big lump? No, it's interspersed just like the comic. You get little okay. bits of the cartoon here, bits of the cartoon there. Well, maybe the mixed media stuff is intentional. Like, you know, I think about the way the anime popped up in Kill Bill or Natural Born Killers. Like, this isn't mixed media. This just looks bad. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> now, in this director's cut, they added some more of the newsstand stuff, which it's like that's a big focal point. Like, it's it's the microcosm of the Watchmen world is this in the comic, this newsstand, in the ultimate cut, do they add more stuff? Like, there's so many more characters going around that newsstand. There's, like, the lesbian taxi driver that's buying Hustler and her girlfriend. Does that <laughs> stuff come into the ultimate cut at all? There's a little bit of it, and there's a little bit more with those gang of top knots who go and kill Night Owl 1. I mean, a little bit, but while it's on the same set, and they even have one scene, the best scene they have is when it's the newsstand and Jackie Earl Haley walks up and is asking to buy the new Frontiersman. And then it cuts directly into film footage because that's the scene in the movie, both cuts, where Walter is seeing Dan and Laurie out on a date. And that's when it hits home, though. 
they didn't film this on the same cameras at the very least. They had the same set, they had the same actors, but this feels like second unit with a consumer grade camera because it looks so different. It's so washed out and bright. Whereas the rest of this film, it is not a bright film. Most of it takes place at night. Well, and in that Black Freighter cartoon, what was weird to me, that's not in the comic, but like Zack Snyder has the corpses talk. And I get that's going inside the guy's head, but it feels just like zombies. It's like, oh, I still want to do a zombie movie. I'm still in Dawn of the Dead mode. <laughs> still on that raft to the island. All right. Yeah, none of that was in the comic. I feel like the Black Freighter stuff was more loosely adapted. Snyder wasn't directly involved. He handed this off. And I mean, it feels very anime liquid television, whereas the rest of Watchmen felt like they were trying to just make a live action version of that original art and frame. So so basically what listeners need to know is that there is an allegorical pirate comic book story that kind of mirrors what goes on in the alternative universe of 1985. But you're not going to get that in a movie unless you commit to this super long cut at four hours. I think of all the parts of this movie, it's the Black Freighter that's most adapted. Because while the comic was very EC Comics, and what it was is a ghost ship killed his crew. He thought the ghost ship was going to go kill his town with his wife and kids. And he's trying to race them back. And it serves as an allegory and a parallel story and a whole lot of padding. But I think that it's more interpreted here, like Zack Snyder may not have had a direct hand in it, because it came out at the same time as this movie, and then later, listen, this movie didn't make money on its theatrical run. I could see why they would insert it in and double dip. If anyone's willing to buy it, yeah. Right, yeah. What we're basically saying here is that the biggest change that was made between the movie and the original graphic novel is that unless you watch the super long cut, this pirate comic has largely been excised, and thus it may or may not take away from how you feel about the end villain. Well, if you've listened to Books and Notches, I know, Stuart, it's, we're recording this before it's out, so you haven't. Nope. I hated the pirate comic stuff, but what I credited it with is the way more used language and like the pirate comic would be commenting on stuff happening in the real world we'd see like a dialogue panel from the pirate comic in the quote-unquote real world or we'd see dialogue bubbles from the real world in the pirate comic and the way it interplayed that doesn't happen here at all well yeah you lose all of that and that was one of the things i really loved throughout watchmen is the way the panels work and you, I get it. This is a movie. You're not going to get that. But I feel like Zack Snyder could he could slow things down into slow motion. But can he do something interesting with the medium of film like Moore and Gibbons did with comics? My feeling was he could have done it if you had human voices talking over the motion comic and Gerard Butler talking over the people. That's how you do it is the two worlds are colliding instead, though, because this wasn't produced as part of the film. This was produced as a standalone DVD that they inserted. Man, no matter what, no matter what arrow I give, strong, strong not recommend to this almost four-hour cut that inserts a cartoon in the middle. I'd rather have razor blades shoved under my fingernails than watch it again. Well, it sounds like you didn't like it in its original form, so there was probably little hope you would enjoy that it's, yeah, expanding this into another hour. That's crazy. Yeah, it just slows down an already slow plot of trying to get through this. I mean, 
we've got so many characters in this thing. Like, the main bad guy. We're kind of avoiding talking about his plot. But Ozymandias, the world's smartest man. Why is he so smart? Is it genetic? Is it studying? I thought I knew. I thought that the comic, I always saw it as following the history of comic book heroes in correlation to what was happening with the world. And being that they started out as just people wearing masks, fighting crime, and then as the world got crazier, that as we started to experiment with nuclear power, it created real superheroes like Dr. Manhattan, people that had magical powers. I thought that Ozymandias came out of drug culture. I thought that he had experimented with pharmaceuticals and that is what gave him his mind. I thought that would have been a cool way of showing why the 60s would have had different kinds of superheroes than the ones in the 30s and 40s. And that's kind of like his origins. Like, he is just naturally smart, but he learns to hide it. And then his parents die and he decides to retrace the steps of... Alexander the Great, who tried to unite the world because that's what he's going to do. And yeah, there is a whole drug trip that he does take. It's just with pot, I believe. But there is a drug trip where he like has this vision. But no, he had his smarts before then. But it's not why he became smart. And I feel like that was a mistake. We don't really get an origin for him. We don't in the comic either for that matter. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, we just never know what is the reason why the smartest man came along at this point in time. And I feel like, yeah, if, if Dr. Manhattan is going to get zapped with nuclear rays, why not have him take a drug or something that expands his mind? I mean, that would have been in keeping with 60s mentality. But no, what we do know is that Adrian Veidt was the second superhero to out himself. And he made billions of dollars basically by walking away and marketing what superheroes were and creating this whole, you know, lavish lifestyle for himself. And so we kind of hate him, right? I mean, there is sort of a snobbery to him. There is something too perfect and exploitative and is he British or does he affect that accent like Madonna? No, that that's all affected. He, yeah, he he was raised in the U.S., but I think he puts on this act. And I do have to say, Arnie, you, you're saying you feel like they do bring in superhero movies. We see his outfit when he's at Studio 54. Oh, he's got the Schumacher nipples. That's full Schumacher, right? He's got the nipples on there and everything, yeah. But my point is that I feel like if you're telling a murder mystery, you want to, A, give everyone a motive, and then B, give us some reason why he wouldn't be the killer. I never feel like they do a great job of disguising that he is not behind it all. Well, I don't think that they give anyone a motive. You say give everyone a motive. You also have the other option of give no one a motive and make it seem like it's an external threat with the big shock being it's him. Yeah, which is what they do. I mean, this is Rorschach going around everyone saying, hey, someone's going after masks. I mean, and here they have Dan, Night Owl, go to Adrian, but that is the the motivation here is just to warn everyone that used to be a costumed adventurer. Yeah, I, again, I just I guess I feel like I wanted to believe that he was innocent. And relating to characters is tough throughout this movie. He's the capitalist, of course you don't trust him. Yeah, there's something to that. Again, I think that's what makes him seem suspicious. But I just never even understand or connect to this character. And I feel like it's because they're hiding the fact that he's behind it all. I'll go ahead and spoil the end of the movie that he is 
created this sort of conspiracy that allows him to launch this Final Solution plan. And while I didn't guess what his plan was, I don't know who could, I did feel like he was definitely up to something very bad when we find out that he's working on creating unlimited power in Antarctica. Both in the comic and here, it's an underserved character. Here, he's a little bit more seen because he's in the background with Dr. Manhattan doing these experiments, which I don't even think we got in the comic. No. no. But he's the one who doesn't have the origin story. The biggest we get for an origin is he tried to create the Watchmen team and the comedian pissed in his Cheerios. But I want to know exactly how, if you're trying to create a super team, you get Dr. Manhattan's phone number to invite him and his girlfriend. <laughs> that would be like me saying, I'm making a garage band. Hey, Steven Tyler, want to sing? He's too good for it? Yeah, I mean, there's not an answer here. It's <laughs> just that they try to form a team. I mean, Dr. Manhattan was always a uh, lackey of the government for, <laughs> you know, he they always kept him locked up. And yeah, I don't know how you convince the government to let him come join your play team well this was the 60s this was before he fought in vietnam so he might not have been under lock and key yet they might have still been trying to figure out what to do with him you know as we see dr manhattan here's one of my th again with Zack snyder's like literalism in the comic you know his eyes were sunken so there's like dark circles around him here he wears mascara because gibbons drew him with blackness around his eye like i don't get that design concept here. I never thought he wore mascara or eyeliner in the comic. I just thought sunken eyes, that's that's shadowing around there. It, I felt like that was Zack Snyder going, I don't know, he's got this blackness around his eyes. We got to do that on the screen too and put all this heavy mascara on him. I, I don't get that design concept. And he's completely hairless except for eyebrows and eyelashes. That's strange. <laughs> uh, I think the filmmakers are forgiven for trying to make this character on screen. It had to be difficult to do. It doesn't ever look like he's on the same scene as everyone else. I, you know, plus he's blue, glowing, and naked. I mean, I just think there's something very distracting about Dr. Manhattan always. And so he is a, a strange fit for a team. That must have been a choice Alan Moore intended when he wrote the book, but you fix in a movie. You've got to give us a scene where they all work together, where this now makes sense as a unit, that we would see how Manhattan would need these other people and vice versa. Can't we just big chill this, though, where the whole story is about these people who had a past coming back together without actually seeing it? I mean, they filmed that scene with Kevin Costner for Big Chill. They cut it for a reason. I feel like here, what we're seeing are people with a history, and they never did actually work together. We saw them try to get together. They never worked with Dr. Manhattan, but they all know each other. Yeah, the Watchmen never took off. It started and ended with this meeting. There were team-ups later with, like, Rorschach and Night Owl, and the Night Owl and Comedian went to stop that riot. It, but there was, there was never the Watchmen. That's the mistake. That's what I'm saying, is that we have the super friends and they never stopped Lex Luthor once. Like, they just sat around and fought all the time, that there's no interaction. If your criticism is that people like this are dysfunctional and don't do any good, then yeah, you show them being dysfunctional, not coming together as a super team. No, you show them dysfunctional trying to stop something. Well, we see that later on. Do we? Where is it? I mean, we see that with Comedian and Night Owl try to stop the riot. Yeah, we saw that as a flashback once and not with everybody. We saw Comedian in Manhattan in Vietnam. I wanted a moment where they all were working, however 
well together, but all working as one as they intended. I think we got that with the Minutemen, though. We saw them as a functional team in that opening credits, and we saw why they fell apart. I don't think we need to see two teams fall apart. We didn't see why they fell apart. I think the rape had something to do with it. But you're learning about all of these things later. There's no connection to the moment there. I think it's a disjointed movie somewhat by design, and I think that disjointedness plays better in the comic than it does when you're trying to follow a three-hour film. I feel like if, yeah, they had the time of a miniseries, they could go jump back and forth in this. But this is very confusing that we never saw this group work together. I, I will say it's confusing. I don't know if it's because the group never came together, but it's confusing. Yeah, the movie is confusing. When I first saw this movie, I actually felt like turning it off halfway through because I was not connecting to any of the characters. But it was never because I didn't see them work as a team. It's because there's so many characters that are so dramatic. They're also full of drama, you know? Rorschach, he's the one you latch onto because he's the only one who's not a mopey pussy. You know, you get Silk Spectre, who all she does is yell at John. I wish, the one moment I wish we had was a moment of the two of them working that wasn't from John's point of view. I wish I could ever see Laurie's point of view as to being in love with John and not just so put off by his Vulcan-esque detachment. And we see Dan sitting around wishing he was out there, but doing really nothing, having no life, and... Everybody's just so mopey that Rorschach, he's so simple. And when he shows up, things are so clean and exciting. I think that's why we latch on to him. It's not Jackie Earl Haley as an actor specifically. It's the fact that this is the character who looks at all you people and goes, uh, yeah, can we go fight somebody? Well, yeah. I mean, he, he makes things simple because he's nihilistic. I, I also like the comedian for that same reason. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that you have a couple characters like that on both sides. And I think... Vite and Manhattan are kind of on the other side and caught in the middle are these people that do it because of the lineage, because their parent figure did it as well. That we have a second Night Owl, a second Silk Spectre. You know, her mother did it, so she has to do it. And the problem is the character was always written to sort of just feel oppressed by the job and we never see her engaged in being a superhero. I never know what her powers are. I never know what she'd want to do. Did she spend the whole time sulking in the phone booth? I just, I can never imagine this character actually fighting crime. Silk Spectre 2? Yes. Well, she does kick some ass later on in the film. I was actually impressed with the way Zack Snyder has her fight. I mean, even early on when she and Dan are going out for dinner and they try to get mugged, she throws punches. I mean, from Wonder Woman to Batgirl from the Adam West series, even through to modern day Batgirl, they're almost always kicking. Like they have no upper body strength, so they have to use their legs. She throws a hell of a punch. I think she fights pretty well. When we see that scene in the alley, I believe her as a superhero. I just don't believe her as a human. We're talking about motive. Like self-preservation is not the same thing as helping people. It's weird that she's so good at fighting if she detests being in the shadow of her mother. I I, gotta, I may be alone in this. I hate the fighting styles here. They have superpowers in this film. They're like super strong. She's like snapping arms in half when she punches them. It, it's kind of ridiculous. And again, for as adherent he is to filming just this book page by page, like when he goes into what Zack Snyder does with fighting, like he goes wildly off of the spirit of this book. Well, not so much as having Superman snap a neck. Spirit isn't Zack Snyder's thing. 
But if <laughs> Bruce Lee was on screen using Kung Fu and he broke an arm, would you sit there and say that's a superhero move? Or would you say he's well-trained? No, but if Dan Dryberg, who who's impotent and fat, and neither of them have fought in eight years, are all of a sudden snapping arms and doing jujitsu flips... No, I, I'm going to call that out. While I think some of the slow motion and some of the editing choices are weird, I'm not going to fault the look of this movie. I think that if you took any frame of this movie and froze it, it looks like it was come out of the comic. I like his color choices. I like his angles. I think that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons gave him great storyboards that he followed to the letter. I like that. And when the fights come... That was my favorite part of 300. The only tolerable part of 300 was the fighting. And I, I scratch my head if I try to think about it, but I enjoy it. Yeah, I just don't think it's appropriate for this story. Uh, I mean, I think it's appropriate for a superhero movie. But this isn't a superhero movie, really. Well, now you're taking this high-minded attitude that we have to make an anti-superhero movie with... Well, that's what Alan Moore... I mean, really, that's what Watchmen is. Okay, but this is a Hollywood movie that has to appeal to mass audiences. I mean, already you need to put that aside. And I don't think they sold out much here. I don't feel like these action scenes are going to have people fist pumping the air. I don't feel like it glamorizes. I think in many ways, it's a way of jumpstarting a movie that probably has people confused, lost, and disengaged. Then you're taking away the wrong part of it. And you're saying this is just a Hollywood standard blockbuster. Well, then it shouldn't be done. Like, I, I'm willing to say, yeah, we could try a Watchmen movie, but it, not this one. Well, you wouldn't tell it this way. I agree. But my problem is not that it over-glamorizes violence. My problem is not with method of its fighting. It's always in the fact that I don't know who to be rooting for, that I don't know where I am, and that there's a lack of a point of view in this story, which works in a postmodern graphic novel that is always making free associations between different mediums of comic books and illustrations, but in a straightforward movie that's trying to distill a story, you have to make choices about what this movie is and isn't about. And Zack Snyder didn't do that. No, when we get to the comedian's funeral, we are going to get flashbacks by multiple characters. No viewpoint here. It's uh, We're going to get a story about Dr. Manhattan and the comedian, about Night Owl and the comedian, Rorschach. Like, it's going to go all over the place. And what all the flashbacks really tell us is that the comedian was a horrible person who used his superpower to do brutal things. To all sorts of people, women and men and countries and innocent protesters, what have you, which makes you think back to that original murder and think, hey, who cares if that guy got thrown out of the window or not? Yeah, you, you don't know who the comedian is when he dies, so you, maybe you're feeling bad for him because he was a superhero. But now at this point, you're just showing he's nothing but horrible. But I guess the hook for me, even when I saw this movie, because I didn't remember the graphic novel that well the first time I saw the movie, and especially the first time I saw the movie for this round, I remembered nothing but impressions. My hook was, okay, if this guy's such a bad guy, is that why he was killed? Or if he's supposed to become a sympathetic character and I'm supposed to feel bad... Why am I supposed to feel bad? What was he killed for that's going to overcome the fact that he's a murdering rapist piece of shit? That intrigues me in 
okay, what is your story? I'm Tell me your story. Anything, again, the comedian you guys said is a lot like Rorschach, and you're right. I like all the scenes with the comedian in them. It's a shame he dies so early. <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> you needed someone to die early because that's the hook of the story here. And if we had a lot of this flashback that gave us a list of suspects... That would be one thing. If we saw this Vietnam flashback and thought, hey, it could be that Viet Cong guy that got away. No, but they didn't get away. What we find out <laughs> is that Nixon basically recruited Dr. Manhattan. Comedian came along with his gun and they won the Vietnam War. I kind of felt like Comedian had been there for a while just enjoying the killing. Yeah, I mean, the war ends within a week of Nixon deciding to bring Dr. Manhattan into the war. The Comedian, yeah, he had been there the whole time. Right. And again, makes you want to see those scenes. How did Nixon approach Manhattan? What is Manhattan going to do with such an offer? Why wouldn't they continue? Why stop at Vietnam? Why wouldn't he march right into the Soviet Union and do the same thing to any perceived enemy? I think you needed scenes between Nixon and the superheroes to try and define what their boundaries were and what their moral orientation was. But the point is to have morally ambiguous gray characters, which is why Rorschach sees everything so black and white in a world where every single one of these characters is laudable and damnable. Now, does it succeed in that goal? I would say on repeat viewings it does. On initial viewing, no. I'd say that there's so much packed in this film that maybe it's some kind of Stockholm Syndrome, but the more I watched it, the more I appreciated it. <laughs> Except for that damn cut I watched last. Oh my god. Yeah, as in the last time I watch it. But also established in the Vietnam flashback is the fact that Comedian impregnated a woman, then wanted to have nothing to do with her. She scars him for life by taking a broken bottle to his face. He repays the favor by shooting her in her pregnant belly and killing her instantly. And again, you can't recover from a character. If you were liking the Comedian before, you cannot like him now. I can appreciate him as an on-screen presence. I've never rooted for him. I still find him a intriguing character on screen. I like the actor's performance. Again, I feel like maybe it's the nature of how they're just interpreting these characters, but, I mean, come on, Dr. Manhattan, Dan Driver, these are boring characters. Laurie, not a lot of personality. I feel like I gotta gravitate towards something that's interesting, so at least Rorschach and the comedian, they have personality, the way the comedian's always chomping in a cigar and has a smile. Like, I feel like, oh, okay, there, there's some emotion when we find out he went to Moloch and was crying. Like, how could this awful, murdering piece of crap, like, break down and have seen something so horrible that he's in tears now? Moloch. See, this, to me, is the first real lead that Rorschach has. That everyone goes to bury the comedian, and they all have their memories of him, most of which are unflattering. They all disperse. There's a guy with a picket sign outside. I don't know upon first viewing, if you hadn't read the comic, you would know that that's Rorschach without his mask. I knew because I knew Jackie Earl Haley because of Nightmare on Elm Street, which I think ruins some of it. I think it's better if you don't know him. It wasn't clear to me whether we should know it's him or not, but because he is still there at the cemetery, he's able to see an arch nemesis in his introductory scene coming to the gravesite and laying a wreath. I think that some of that flashback could have been used to set up him as a major villain, but they chose not to. 
Yeah, he just seems like a weird, like, Gollum character with weird ears. Like, you don't really get... You're told, but you're not showing that this was like an arch nemesis to these characters. There's no moment in, in a movie filled to the rafters with flashbacks. There's no one flashback where they fought this guy. Any character. He always felt weird like that for me. And the fact that it's Matt Frewer, Max Headroom. We've talked about him in Lawnmower Man 2 and... Dawn of the Dead and... Generation X. But he always felt like a character out of it, and if the only super being is Dr. Manhattan, what's up with those ears? Was he just a bad breech birth? I mean, I found it kind of weird when I read the graphic novel as well. Yeah, it's it's just a disfigurement, but it, it's so out of the ordinary. Like, yeah, we have Dr. Manhattan, who literally does have superpowers and then all the rest just dress up to have someone now with this these weird ears is he like a troll who is he and you know because i read the comic i know a little bit about why he got out of the game and and know more about his story but because the government passed a law that says there can be no more superheroes does not mean that that law applies to super villains he could be out there still causing crimes you want to know what made him stop and there's really Almost nothing we understand about this character other than he is suffering from cancer, he has given up being a super nemesis, and one week ago the comedian came to him crying, saying, quote, it's all a joke. What was the joke? I think he's just making a comment on life in general with it's all a joke. Like, the whole World War Three is a joke, the entire human existence is a joke, everything we think we believe to be true, it's all a big practical joke. At the end, Ozymandias says it's the world's greatest practical joke, and the comedian had professional jealousy. Yeah, I feel like they really try to drive home this whole it's a joke comedian thing, like, by repeating that motif at the end with Ozymandias. They can repeat it a hundred times, and I don't know that it's... <laughs> at all clear to me you don't get the joke what is what exactly they're talking about I, the joke could be many things the joke could be that i've spent my life fighting for what's truth and right and i was just playing into a a game and i'm a pawn to something it could be that everything that we think about the war is actually a facade did he know when he's crying at his nemesis bedside that there was this master plot to kill most of the people yes i'd say yes based on the book i don't know about this film yeah based on the book i know it no it is revealed at the end of the movie that he found out this out and he couldn't take it like ozymandias would have been good keeping him in on the secret since he was full of government secrets but he started to crack under the pressure of this one so that's why he had to be killed yeah I, at the end of this film is so much talking monologue like i tune out so yeah i don't think it's really clear to anyone why he's crying or coming to the supervillain. I like the exchange. I like the relationship. Here's a relationship moment that I like that you're my super nemesis, but you're also the best friend I got in this world. I love that irony, but I feel like that could have better payoff in the end. It's not clear to me why he would go to Moloch other than to tell him what's going on. I mean, he could just say to you, hey, you got cancer because of this crazy plot that Adrian put into motion. But he doesn't tell him any specifics. He just is drunk, 
cries, and leaves. I don't think he knows about the cancer. Well, he's seen a list. I think he mentions a list. I don't think he knows what the list was. I don't think that we'll ever know what he knows. And that's frustrating. (laughs) We're told a lot of things and things are insinuated, but it's worth pointing out the final solution plan has been streamlined. And because of that, it isn't clear what he knows. We know in the comic book what he knows. Uh, It isn't clear here. And that's, again, a poor adaptation choice. We should be able to reflect on moments. The reason why you do movies like this with flashbacks and flash forwards is that you change perspective once you know something future. And when I get to the end of this movie and reflect back on this moment, I don't know why he did it. I do not know why he came to Moloch. He was cracking under the pressure. That's about all I've got and about all I need. But... Yeah, even without the book, because again, I watched this movie many times without remembering the comic. This movie has everything you need. Are you going to get it on one viewing? No, not at all. Every question has an answer. Every action has a motivation. But I don't think it's, you got to watch it repeatedly because it's so just crafty and artful. Like, it's 2001 and I just, I got to go back and see it again to grasp this symbol. I I just think it's sloppy storytelling. Oh, agreed. You want to feel it. I don't want to be told something. I want to feel it. And I don't feel like most of this movie is experienced as anything more than like, if you're lucky enough to piece it together, it's just an intellectual game. It's never a moment of being like, ah, this is great, or ha ha ha. I mean, we never laugh with the comedian. We never cry with him either. You don't need any more from this. I would like to know why he would go back to a super nemesis and then not tell him what's upsetting him. He doesn't do it in the comic either, in the comics acclaimed, but I didn't even know that at the time that I watched it. I took it as he's under pressure, he's cracking, he's trying to keep the secret. He wants to keep the secret. I think he is on Ozymandias' side as far as this is the right thing to do to save humanity. Okay, maybe. Yeah, that's probably right. But the fact that this is all vague speculation is a problem with the writing and the adaptation. But... We lose track of Comedian, we lose track of Rorschach, and this movie really many times becomes a love triangle. We've mentioned the fact that we have Dr. Manhattan, Silk Spectre, and Night Owl. These are characters as important as Rorschach for half of the movie, but never feel as important. Yeah, I would agree with that. Their little drama, it's arduous. The first hour of this movie, I disagree with everything you've said, Stuart. I think that it's tight. I think that it's moving forward. I think that it has me hooked and interested. The flashbacks, I want to know more about these characters. I want to know what exactly went down in the 40s. I want to know about this mass killer. But at the one hour mark, this movie stops wanting to tell me. And while the plot progresses a little bit in that that cancer plot really comes out when Dr. Manhattan's on TV, we're going to get so many origin stories and so many backstories and so much else that it's dull watching because it's not good drama. If it was dramatic film that worked on this level, great, give it to me. Unfortunately, it's not working, especially when you have a giant blue cartoon as part of your drama. (laughs) I mean, for like the first seven issues of the comic, you could sit in this movie and go, okay, from the beginning to minute whatever, that's issue one. From this time signature to this one, that's issue two. Like, you could outline it that closely. I can mark where each issue is beginning. They mix it up a little bit towards the end. But yeah, this is a straight translation, which it just isn't going to work in a film. I don't want to get too structure-oriented, but films have a structure. Screenplays have a structure that by following it, 
in the way that they are issue by issue, they are not going to honor. And maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but what it means is that it feels unlike a typical superhero movie. And I feel like this would do itself a lot of favors by feeling more like a mystery story, and that anything that didn't serve the mystery should be minimized or removed from this adaptation here this love story stuff i mean there's funny moments i i like the moment where she's in bed with two manhattans and and the third one is off doing computations or whatever i mean i get the conflict i think it's interesting i don't think that manhattan is the only one that is becoming less and less human and relatable i also think that <laughs> malam ackerman is a terrible actress and is giving us None of the emotional, all of the emotions she's claiming are not in her lover are also absent from her performance. And she's key here. We need to believe that she is driven insane by the fact that she is romantically involved with someone who is drifting further and further away from his humanity. I kind of like her. I don't think she gives everything she needs, but I think she's the second best actor in this thing with Jackie Earl Haley being first. I find that a lot of the characters' motivations are missing. That's the writing as much as anything. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm comparing her to the actress who plays her mother, who is god-awful. Here's the thing with the actress who plays her mom. If you watch that Under the Hood, she acts better in that little featurette than she does in this film. She is so bad in this film. Well, she has to do lots of her work in old age makeup, which is never a service to actors. She has old age makeup in the featurette. It's better makeup than in the actual film for some reason. Her line deliveries here are just terrible. Everyone from Silk Spectre 1 is just... It's like she's trying to act like a 40s actress and playing to the back row. Ackerman, I think she does pretty well here. I honestly do. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you guys here. Can you cite a moment where you felt like you understood her heart? Her scenes with Dan, that part of the romance. When she's with Dr. Manhattan, I'm a little bit out of it. I really kind of enjoy the scenes, though, when she's being interrogated by the feds and they're like saying that she didn't do her job and she slams you're not going to call me a whore and that's just the director's cut though right yeah that is just the director's cut yeah you don't see that you didn't see that in the movie theaters no but the cut that the director wants us to see it's not just an extended cut it's truly a director's cut it's in there her scenes with dan i buy their romance because of her in this i mentioned in books and nachos that i really didn't get the Laurie Dan thing. I think Laurie is poorly written on the page. Here, I think with Malin Ackerman behind it, I actually believe she is interested in Dan. I like their dinner out together early on when they're laughing about how Rorschach threw this masochist down a elevator shaft. That's a really funny scene. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that I don't buy her flirtations or that she's engaging to Dan. I get that he's a fat schlub that would have a crush on her. What I'm saying is we need to understand her character that she really loves Dr. Manhattan, but that he has changed over time. The more more that he continues to explore the world on a microscopic level, the less that he can come back to her. Oh, yeah, I don't get that at all. Yeah, that stuff is key. I mean, that's really important to feel that stuff. Otherwise, she just looks like she's cheating. The point is she's being pushed away by Manhattan, not that she's just decided, oh, I'm going to shack up with Night Owl. She's just a far less interesting character because Ackerman can't play her. Well, I don't think it's written there. I think the writing is the fault because she can play the emotion she's given, 
But every time she's with John, she's stuck as a harpy. You know, there's nothing written to show that. Even in the flashbacks, I do think in Dr. Manhattan's flashback with her, she does some great face acting to convey emotion wordlessly that she's attracted to this big blue battery. I don't get it, but I get it from her face and her eyes and her body language. I don't think there's a line of dialogue that would tell me, no matter how she delivered it, why she is pulling away from him. Here's what I'll boil it down to, is I understand how a lot of things are supposed to be interpreted. I just don't feel any of that here. Like, I understand what Lori's supposed to be doing. I understand how she's supposed to be feeling. I don't buy any of it. Right. A lot is being told. And, you know, I'm not here to, you know, lay blame on who's at fault, if it's Ackerman or the writing or the directing. The bottom line is we need to understand this character, and we don't. And we spend too much time with her for her to not mean something. I think I understand her in the fact that, and I'm getting this just from the movie, she was pushed into heroics by her mother, and then she was pushed in with Manhattan after the flirtation and kept there by the government and not really able to step out on her own. If any character has an arc, it's her who's becoming self-actualized here. Now, yes, I don't get the whole thing with John, but John himself... I'd be a little pissed if I found out my wife was working during what I thought was hot sex, too. But truthfully, I think she falls in the shadow of Haley, but she is so far above everybody else in this film. I don't know. The comedian's really good, too. I don't know that actor, but he does really well. He's not in it very much. As far as the main actors go, though, it goes Haley, Ackerman, and then the rest. And I just can never get behind Patrick Wilson as Night Owl. The makeup in his current day age, is just distracting. It's not as bad as Nixon, but it's still extraordinarily distracting, and I just don't buy him. I don't understand why he's just sitting around at home, why he is now afraid of Rorschach, why he keeps all this stuff down there. It's I never get his emotional journey. Well, he's sitting at home because no superhero is allowed to go out there, and he's tortured because I think that he needs that suit in order to feel powerful, that he can't have sex, that he can't feel good about himself, that he has no confidence unless he has that in his life. And these are things that could be better underlined if we saw more of his relationship with Rorschach. If they'd stayed with Rorschach, if we'd seen more of their partnership, that would have told us a lot. But I don't have a problem with Patrick Wilson. I I think he's actually one of the better actors in here. And an actor I'm more familiar with, too, I should say. But uh, I'm not going to overpraise him. I, I don't feel like any actor here really excels other than Jackie Earl Haley. I don't feel like they understand the material. It honestly comes across as they're not sure. There's so much weirdness going on in this world that I don't feel like they can tell us what's going on because they don't know themselves. And I know a lot of them didn't read the graphic novel until they got, you know, hired for the movie. And then they, oh, yeah, I'll read this now. And they probably read it once. It's one you got to read more than once to really get what's going on. But yeah, there you get that moment we talked about where Dan and Lori are fighting the alley while... John is giving this press conference like there's supposed to be sexual tension after that fight like their hands are touching they're sweaty they're breathing heavy I don't get sexual tension between these actors and I maybe they weren't directed to have sexual tension it just feels like refought and and we're gonna go to the next scene now I don't get tension so much as he gives her puppy dog eyes and she's oblivious but 
I think that's still mountains better than when we get to Billy Crudup's solo scene, you know? <laughs> like, he, it, this is the film version of a drum solo when we have the entire backstory of Dr. Manhattan told non-chronologically, hopping all around as an attempt to describe his interpretation of time in a way that just, you know what, I think we would have been better if this was done in the opening credits as part of the montage and not spending so much time on him and the watch and that first girlfriend. Yeah, I feel like this is a music video that doesn't work. This is a bad music video. It should be a good one. Like, it is this musical interlude, and I like that they got Philip Glass going. It's appropriate for this character. But yeah, it's... Look, I praise that issue, even though it, I don't think the whole thing's necessary. It is a great piece of poetry and philosophy here. Like, they're trying to hit the high points, and it's a, I don't know, five to ten minute distraction where we're getting a whole lot of story that ultimately doesn't matter. Is that all it is? It felt like a half an hour. I'm being generous saying it's five to ten minutes. I think it's essential because we want, of all the characters, he's the one you want to understand the most. Yeah, but do you understand him? He's the one that is the weirdest. He's the one that we need to know the backstory to. Do I like this backstory? I think there's a couple things going on here. One, it's really hard to inhabit a character that has lost his humanity. By becoming super powerful, he suddenly feels beyond the limitations of being a human being. And thus, why should I spend my time saving and helping them when I can go off into any other part of the universe and study molecules? And there are other things more interesting than human beings. And since I'm not limited to being a human being, why should I care? It's a great conflict, but not one that's easily to dramatize and one that Crudup fails to do for whatever reason. The backstory, you know, it's a little Bruce Banner, you know, kit with gamma rays or something. I mean, Spider-Man bit by a radioactive spider, Fantastic Four, the cosmic rays. I mean, you name it, there's a lab accident for it. Yeah, but what's important about it is that he's the second generation. The first generation didn't have superpowers. They just had had a desire to put on a cape and fight crime for whatever reason. And I mean, I, I love the fact that, yeah, for some people, it's a sexual turn on. For some people, it's a psychotic compulsion. For him, I don't feel like he ever chose crime fighting, that he basically was made a mutation. And then, yeah, again, because we don't have the scene with him and Nixon, I don't know why he decides to use his powers to help America. I mean, all we're told, and this comes later, is that we're all puppets, but he's just able to see the person pulling the strings. Like, he doesn't believe in free will. It's all just predestination for him. Yeah, he's haunted by that fact. And I mean, I do think that's an interesting interlude when you're learning about the character. He's got a lot of Superman here, right? I mean, I feel like these characters are DC archetypes. Is it fair to say that Night Owl is Batman and... So is Rorschach. They were based on actual charlatan characters that were bought by DC about a year before... Watchmen was published and more wanted to use those characters. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Blue Beetle or The Question. Those are probably the most notable ones. No. But I, I would say, like, I see Batman in Warshack. I see Batman in Night Owl. Yeah, Superman in Dr. Manhattan. I mean, I mean, even DC has had a version of Superman that's similar to Dr. Manhattan uh, in its multiverse. So more 
probably didn't draw from those exactly, but they're archetypes. I mean, they're, they're broad archetypes that came from the beginning of superhero comics, so I'm sure they had an influence. But it feels like the Fortress of Solitude, you know, he can't go to Antarctica and make one because Vice already there, but he can go to Mars and build this, yeah, basically it's like a giant clock or something and it allows him to meditate and it's interesting, he can see all time at once. I always like characters like that, I think that's an interesting phenomenon. So yes, the world in that case feels like it's predestined. He has no influence. Why would I try to save anyone? Things are just going to happen the way that they are. He's he's impotent in many ways. And so what can motivate him? What can get him to shake from that feeling? What's interesting is that he can't see whether there's going to be a nuclear war or not, because he talks about a temporal disturbance, that there is something that has been created in the future that has blocked that vision. It's even more confusing in the movie like in in the graphic novel I got it like on the third reading there's something what tracheons or something that move backwards in time and there's a lot of them and that's what's blinding his vision of the future I got it on my second watching here but maybe it's because I watched a lot of Star Trek with tachyon pulses Oh, okay, tachyons. Yeah, and so, I mean, I, I don't need to understand the science of it, but yeah, basically, something has happened to block the future, and he thinks it's the actual nuclear explosion, that he thinks that bombs have gone off, and because of that, he's not able to see it. So in some ways, that confirms there's going to be a nuclear war, but he can't see exactly when, how, and who's going to do it, whether it's Nixon or Russia. Now, it's revealed when he's on that TV program that he's been giving those around him cancer. And his girlfriend, Janie, comes out. She's the one from the flashback that we're going to see. And she pulls off her wig in a dramatic moment. And later we find out that she works for Pyramid International. And Pyramid International is this shadow company that Voight owns and... It's followed because in a moment we're going to see a scene where Vite himself is attacked by an assassin. Is she in on all of this or is she just given cancer and she's out there? Because the way she's like, you did this to me, John. This is how you repay me. It feels like she's on the payroll of Ozymandias just to be dramatic and send John away. I mean, they show that they have like cancer emitting fog shooting from the vents. I I don't think any of them knew they were getting cancer. I think she was reacting to, you know, he left her for a 16-year-old girl. And so I think she has a lot of hate for him. So she was being dramatic, and that's what she was told to do. But later, I think we're told that she hired a guy in a bar to to attempt to kill Vite. No, Vite's made that order on himself. No, I know, but I thought she was working through him. She worked for the same company that hired the hitman. It's all very confusing. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, she is, yes, on the payroll of the villain of this movie and is being manipulated like everyone else so that his master plan can come into play. That she was given cancer because Ozymandias is so smart, he could anticipate that that would send Dr. Manhattan off the planet. And that's what he wanted to do. A little far-fetched. I do feel like this is maybe a little too clever. The idea that someone is so smart, they could anticipate all of this. It almost makes him and Manhattan the same thing. Manhattan can see the future, and Ozymandias is so smart, he just knows what 
outcomes are inevitable. But he's the enigma. We don't really get an origin story for him. We never see him put on the suit. We see that for everybody else both in the comic and in this movie. So it's a bit of a loss. It's hard to look like this is the only way to get world peace when Ronald Reagan in 1987 would end the Cold War. You know, like two years after this comic book, the cowboy television actor did it without having to blow up most of the world. So I gotta say, reality has a way of making this plot that he's got cooking seem even more outrageous. Yeah, but when this was written, that was the fear that it was all going to end up in nuclear annihilation. I mean, again, you change that for this film. No, I'm saying it's a problem with the source material is that you're reading this thinking, yeah, in 1985, this might have felt like, yeah, we're right on the edge. And in reading it in 1988, you might be like, well, I guess he didn't really have to bring down the squid and everything. I mean, it's just, uh, it's a rather extreme plot that he has going on here. And I think we would do well to over-explain it now. We've kind of hinted at what he's doing without really saying that, yes, he has a dummy corporation that has gone around and planted the seeds to basically... Uh, disrupt the functionality of the remaining superheroes. He's killed the comedian because the comedian might have exposed this plot. He has driven Manhattan away because Manhattan is super powerful enough to stop him. Which it seems like that was the only part of his plot. That's all he needed to do was get rid of Manhattan, but because the comedian found out about it, then he had to take extra steps. Right. He frames his own assassination. This one's kind of fun, that uh, he's having a, a sit-down with the automotive industry, Lee Iacocca, who in the 80s was very big and restarting General Motors, here is pleading with Ozymandias, or I guess he's Adrian now, he's given up being a superhero, but he's pleading with him to please not develop alternative energy because it's hurting the car industry. Uh, it's still relevant now. I, I think that's funny. So was the whole uh, socialist debate. Free power, that's socialism. Kind of sounds like this year's presidential election. It is the theme. If I had to boil down Watchmen, I do feel like the theme of it is the escalation of liberal versus conservative. It takes those arguments to small, microscopic little elements and then blows them up to a worldwide conflict in which, yes, socialist Soviet Union versus a Nixon brutal fake in extreme. He's even more extreme than he was when he was, you know, thrown out of office in 1974. By 1985, he is literally now saying, I'm going to fire the nukes and do a preemptive strike here. Yeah, they're going to give Manhattan two days to come back. And if not, he's firing the nukes. Yeah, so you're seeing extreme versions of both sides as world powers. So, yes, the solution is I have to create a world disaster big enough to kill enough people to basically scare people into world peace. But I'll say that I think Zack Snyder did something else right. He named the Watchmen Watchmen instead of Crime Busters, and... He got rid of the giant squid. Man, that was an uproar. Just like, oh my god, no pirate story? Oh my god, no giant squid? But looking at the way that Dr. Manhattan is the American superpower, both in the comic and in the movie, and that he's the one enforcing the peace by being America's ultimate weapon, by making him the enemy, and the fact that we spend so much time on his backstory and his powers, that is so much cleaner. Yeah, but why would the rest of the world trust America when it was their super weapon that went off everywhere? 
Just because it blew up part of our country, too? Yeah, to be clear, giant squid means a fake alien invasion that was cooked up by, yes, the guy that wrote the pirate comic and a whole bunch of people on a yacht who end up getting blown up in the comic book. I assume they didn't film any of these scenes? Not a one, thank God. Okay, so that remains only in Alan Moore's original graphic novel. But yes, that they were responsible for coming up with the design of the creatures and who knows what else. There's something said in the comic about like actual interdimensional travel. Like they got an interdimensional squid, but then put a human brain in it and did some genetic modification to make it bigger. But it's an actual alien. Oh, it is an actual alien. But the actual alien was small and stupid, and so they had a human psychic brain and make it giant. Okay, whatever. It really doesn't matter. The idea is that they're scaring people by creating a mass panic. To me, I can understand that, you know, we're going to see it this summer, Independence Day. You know, countries that normally fight will unite with a common enemy. And uh, that's basically the simple concept here through this complicated plot, is that there will be world peace if you can create an enemy that's scary enough that we all feel threatened by it. And so a space alien, yes. Dr. Manhattan is America's guy. So I don't know why the Soviet Union wouldn't think that he was working on behalf of America. Manhattan blew up? Not Dr. Manhattan, but the actual island of Manhattan. Right, yes. New York was attacked. Yeah, but I don't see why they still wouldn't hold America accountable for their super weapons actions. Yeah, I don't buy it in any version. In the Alan Moore graphic novel or in this movie, that there is one thing that could unite every country. I don't believe that you can do that. And I certainly don't believe that Veidt's plan is feasible in either version. But at least by having a space alien, a squid or whatever it is you want to say, it creates a paranoia about something coming that no one has seen before. By having Manhattan, a well-known beloved figure up until maybe a few weeks ago when you found out he might give you cancer if you stand next to him. I just don't see that there's any motive. And I don't see there's any proof that it was him. Why would people think that he did it? Because Ozymandias found his energy signature. All of these experiments they've been doing for free energy were really just there to reproduce Dr. Manhattan's specific energy signature so when they do the tests it looks like Dr. Manhattan did it. You'd think someone would be smart enough to notice that the epicenter of all these explosions were where they had Ozymandias's machines for free energy. Yeah, okay. Or the fact that Nixon was about to hit the button anyway and could have fired the missiles. I mean, when that many people are killed, I don't know that you get good information about who did what. I think that's even sort of the in joke of this movie is that there will always be a conspiracy theory. There will always be someone that will reject the idea of peace or the common history of what happened and how things transpired here. So again, I just don't buy the premise. I just feel like ultimately this is not a good plot and that, yes, a man as smart as Adrian should know this is not a great plot, but it is what's in the book and it is what they're sticking to uh, that they want to frame Manhattan. I guess my attitude would be, why not frame Vite? <laughs> if I can take the fall, why don't we just expose that you did this and you can be the bad guy. Either way, it clears countries. Well, because Dr. Manhattan is all-powerful. And so by being omnipotent, everybody fears him. 
Ozymandias can be killed. Dr. Manhattan is out there somewhere and could come back at any time and kill more. There's some lip service that the world is going to unite in case Dr. Manhattan strikes again. Like, we're going to have some anti-Dr. Manhattan shield over the whole world to fight him. Yeah, okay. At any rate, I don't buy the premise. But do I like the climax? I like the jailbreak, okay. Again, Rorschach being a strong character, I like to see the superheroes become superheroes again and say, screw the Keen Act, we're going to get in the owl spaceship, we're going to bust out of prison, we're going to go fight the fight. I feel like we could have gotten here much earlier. Yeah, I like it when he gets caught and the big fight that happens there when the cops are tipped off that he's at Moloch's and they come after him. I love him in prison. Without his mask, he's still a badass. The way he burns that guy with the fire. And then the little person crime lord who was an actor I know from Seinfeld. He played Mickey on Seinfeld. (laughs) Standing there and all of that. I just... Every scene Rorschach's in is electric. Yeah, I'd like a Rorschach spinoff film, please. Which, again, I think is the wrong message. You should not be rooting for the obvious psychopath. But I, I get what you're saying. Like, in this film, and maybe in the comic as well, of these impotent characters, like, he is one that can still get it up to say figuratively and in comic book movies i mean deadpool is he that far removed from deadpool except deadpool tells jokes he's like deadpool is the merging of the comedian and rorschach but yeah i feel like it's easy to root for characters that have their own sense of justice and are not afraid to kill to protect the greater good but is he protecting the greater good? I mean, I, I think these are discussions that are better served in the source material than in this film. And, th- and that's why I say I think people get the wrong message from this film. But I get what you're saying. Like, yeah, he sees everything as black and white. He has the mask with the moving figures. I, I'm guessing that was all CGI. They never merged to make a gray. I loved how they did that CGI. I wondered how they did it. And it was one of the last bonus features I finally found. He just wore a white stocking mask, even with eye holes in it. And the rest is all CGI. Good work on that. It looks great. And I presume that it changes with his mood? No, it's just random. It's like a lava lamp. Mm, That's disappointing. He's not a science fiction character. He has no magical powers. So why is this happening? In the comic, there's a backstory about a magic dress. Yeah, it's a designer dress he made. And the model didn't want it. And she ended up getting murdered while everyone watched. And so he turned it into a mask. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. That was in the comic? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You get a whole story about the mask. I don't remember that. Yeah. I mean, the reason he loves that mask, that material is because the black and the white swirl around each other but they will never merge to make gray and that's that's like his his moral code i see okay yeah i i think we root for rorschach i think it's a mistake whenever we're not around him too often and the proof in that is yeah this great prison break where he doesn't even need to be rescued they show up to bust him out of his cell and he's already been out because some prisoners wanted to kill him and and cut through the bars and he took care of them, and they had that really fun moment with the swinging bathroom door where he takes care of the... Big figure. Big figure, yeah, exactly. Again, this movie is strong. You're saying you want a Rorschach spinoff, Arnie. I want a Rorschach movie. I think that it was a mistake. You you want Rorschach, not Watchmen. Well, I, I think you tell Watchmen through Rorschach's vision. I agree. That You gotta do something to distill the story and to give it 
a point of view, unless you're some crazy director from the 70s, you know, do some kind of acid trip, flashback, jump forward, out of time movie. Zack Snyder's not that director. The obvious choice would be Tarantino, right? With what he did with Pulp Fiction, you could tell little stories in here and then have them interconnect. And, you know, that's kind of what happens. You know, it's the postmodern philosophy. And yeah, so much about the graphic novel is ink blots where you you make connections and you see things what where you want to see that yeah you would go with a director that's comfortable making entertainment that's also ambiguous and Tarantino makes sense i always thought Scorsese would be a fun one you could do it like goodfellas and go back in time you know the way that you know i always wanted to be a gangster and we saw him go back and become a gangster in goodfellas i feel like that could have been structured and handled with superheroes in a similar way here there's a lot of good choices again it's certain death if you have someone literalize what the comic book is i don't know how you do it but i know how you don't do it and that's how (laughs) snyder is doing it i do feel he was creatively paralyzed like he was so afraid of pissing off the fans of the comic that he decided he would just do the comic so nobody could be mad and yet I don't think he did it very well. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm a fan of that comic. I wish this was more different. I wish there were creative choices made. And, and changing the squid to a, a nuclear blast that looks like Dr. Manhattan is not a creative change. It's not going to save you at this point in the movie. I do feel like, by and large, you have a very faithful story. But in order to be true to Watchmen, you have to betray the structure you have to betray it in order to be true to its core to what it's about you have to tell it the way that movies work and not the way that this graphic novel was put together in 12 issues it just it's two different things maybe if they had more time maybe if they could make it a miniseries and allow moments to be more dramatically satisfying individual scenes not have so much telling but showing but because they don't have that time it means excising a lot by the same token i feel like there's a lot good going on here too though i think that when you get dan and laurie at the apartment fire and i first saw this movie and i didn't even put together that it was in the comic i'm like oh they're just ripping off what Raimi did with spider-man 2 and now i realize Raimi probably did what Watchmen did. and You get a shot of Laurie putting coffee cups away, which makes no sense. It makes sense from the comic because there's they pass out coffee. They don't do that in this film, but they left that shot in. I'm a little confused. What we're talking about is when they first decide to suit up again and yeah, go say yeah, that. Yeah. But that's all just pretext for being able to have sex. I mean, you get that, I think, kind of a dumb scene scored to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, where we get the flamethrower cum shot and all of that. Well, like I said, Snyder and I would have great time talking music together. However, I think he over-literalizes it. I mean, could he get more on the nose than times they are a change-in for an alternate history? And now, Hallelujah, a song about religion, and Leonard Cohen always has sexual overtones in everything he does. It's like, all right, how about something that's ironic? I mean, the way he had Down With the Sickness by Richard Cheese in the action scene of Dawn of the Dead. He kind of did that with the opening song here, but most of his music is just an obvious literalism versus something that aids the scene. It just, it helps that I like it. Nothing sells that to me more than a climax score to All Along the Watchtower. Get it? Because they're watchmen. Woo! Ugh. Ugh. 
That is the sound <laughs> I made when that played. There were a lot of that. And I, you know, I think that there is a tendency when you tell movies, epics that go over time, it's, it's shorthand. We want to say where we're at or what it's about. And so we, we grab the most obvious song and the most obvious thing. And, and that will tell us what time we're in. Maybe for the flashbacks, some of that is helpful. But I feel like a lot of times, yes, the music is on the nose and it isn't helping this movie. I'll say that Boogeyman did help to let me know that scene was going to be set in the 70s since it was the disco version, not the Rob Zombie version. But again, it's Boogeyman when the comedian is being mean. It's like, mm. Yeah. We get a little more investigation before they get to Antarctica. There's some people beaten up in a bar. It's not very satisfying. They they invent a passcode to a computer. I mean... They didn't need to go to that bar. Rorschach already knew because they changed some of the storytelling up that this pyramid company was in on it. Like, And then they go to the bar to find out basically the same information. Like, they could have cut the whole thing. And in the director's cut, they it goes even longer because you find out about the Not Tops killing Hollis, Night Owl 1, and you get that scene with Dan attacking one of them. Look, we did not need to know that there were two Night Owls. Do not do that. <laughs> we do not care. We do not need to know that. That is confusing. I do like, though, if you're going to have Hollis Mason in this movie, I'm glad the director's cut has a scene where he's killed and it gives a point. It shows that Night Owl 2 can go as dark and as violent as Rorschach if pushed to it. Yeah, it doesn't pay off. I see no point in having him in this movie. The idea that there are gangs running around, it's, again, is taking away from the focus of this movie. I would much rather have had young Night Owl get killed and old Hollis have to prove he can still get in the suit or something. I mean, there's no point in having the old guy in this movie at all. There's a point to him in the comic book. There's none here. Yeah, they go to Adrian Veidt's office and, what, hack into his Apple II? Guess his password. They guess his password. Smartest man in the world uses an actual name as a password. He obviously doesn't know a thing about password security. Uppercase, lowercase, numbers and symbols, sir. Not the name of a book on your desk. Come on, it's 2016 and password 123 is still the most popular password. But he's the smartest man in the world, Jacob. So he goes password 1234. <laughs> yeah, this is where what should be obvious when we find out the company name is Pyramid is spelled out for everybody that Ozymandias is behind it and they'd go and stop him except Manhattan shows up to take Silk Spectre off for a good Mars cry. Oh, yeah. We got to go back to them, don't we? <laughs> it's so painful. I mean, this works even less than it did for me in the comic. Uh, Lori trying to make a case for humanity. I don't think she makes it at all here. Like, she attempts in the comic, and I felt like John really helped her along. Here, she, what, cries a bit and has a flashback? Another flashback in this film? Like, I don't feel like she does anything here. I'm glad that here it's at least made very clear that how Manhattan spurring her memory makes her realize the comedian is her father. I think that's unclear in the comic. Well, in the comic, I felt like she finally connected the dots by having to think about it here. Yeah, it's just like superpowers. You, you got this memory back. Why do we need that storyline at all? Well, 
because that's supposedly what convinces John to come back to Earth, that it's already hard enough, you know, out of a million sperms, only one's going to get to fertilize that egg, and for her to be born, it meant that two people that hated each other had to come together in union, and then that sperm had to win out to make her, so she is that miracle that he's been looking for, and people are miracles. You're told a lot of stuff, basically. Okay, but she wasn't a product of rape. It's worth pointing out. This no, no, no. They came together like years later. Yeah, it's important to distinguish this, and it's really needlessly confusing. We're shown a near rape of Sally and the comedian back in 1940, and for much of this movie, it's insinuated that Sally hates this man for what nearly happened, and it tr- makes her daughter not speak to him later when they're trying to form a new super team and what have you. But the truth is, in a scene that we never saw, she patched things up with the comedian and had consensual sex. Yes, and I think it's actually made more clear in the movie than in the comic, because here you see her husband saying he tries to rape you, and years later you go back and let him finish the job. That's not even in the comic. So the comic makes it, I think, a little bit more difficult. I assumed in the comic that she was the product of rape. That was my reading the first time I read it, but it, no, that that is not the case. Okay. But I could see how you get there. Yeah, it's it's not as clear in the comic. Yeah. Because they're talking about conflicts and it's out of this thing, it almost implies the idea that this was an unwilling pregnancy and thus a, a random act of violence that gave birth to her. Something good coming out of something bad. That was my memory of as well, as I thought she was a rape baby, but no. Right. But that is not the case, and yes, what's miraculous about it is that these two kids patched it up ten years later and decide to have consensual sex. And then they have a falling out again where... (laughs) None of which is seen, yes. It's, uh, again, why not just tell the story chronologically so we can see these moments? Well, that would be boring as hell to start in the 40s. It wouldn't be boring as hell. It's the way to tell this movie. You either stay in present day and just, you know, have it be a noir detective story, or you go epic where we see decade by decade how things progress here. I don't think there's a whole lot interesting in the 40s. There is a rape, but I don't think there's a lot to tell that has anything to do with the story being told, which is... World War Three and the way to stop it. Well, is that the story being told? I mean, uh, there are so many stories here. You're being selective by saying that's the one that matters. I mean, you could tell the Watchmen as an epic story about crime fighting and show exactly how people first got into the game, the falling out. But again, it, it requires writing scenes, not montages. <laughs> it requires stepping away from what Moore did and having your own ideas. It, it requires so much more creativity. It requires a four-movie deal because it's going to take so damn long. Possibly, but I mean, look at Goodfellas. I mean, you can, or force gump you can move through time if you are judicious about the moments you select to show and have a real point of view to share and convey yeah you gotta pick a a viewpoint here and I, i feel that's what's lacking is this a movie about how superheroes are perverts and sadistic and impotent is this a movie about nuclear annihilation is this a murder mystery Zack Snyder doesn't know. I don't know. 
the film has no viewpoint and you got to pick something. You got to decide what story you want to tell and then develop a script around that. Right. Yeah. The the book is Inkblots and Zack Snyder filmed Inkblots. You need to film an interpretation. You need to have a concept. There, And I feel like there are directors that could do something very artistic with Inkblots, but not Zack Snyder. Lots of them could. Almost any of them that would tackle this would try to tell some story. Whether it was good or bad is not the point. They would see that they would need to make choices out of what was on the page into formulating a screenplay. You wouldn't just film it as is. It's not ready for that. It's not understood in that way. I mean, where the hell did this links come from? <laughs> well, it doesn't matter because you've removed the need to foreshadow that Adrian Veidt can do genetic modifications. The whole point of that Link's thing was to go, oh, he could make his own creatures. He could put a psychic's brain into an alien and make it big. Right. Yes. There is a lot more, not a lot more, but somewhere in the comic where we, we get the sense that, yeah, there, this is in 1985 where you can make genetic modifications like we're having in today's world. And that one of them is that he invented this battle cat blue creature to be his pet. And yeah, you wish it would do something. I mean, if they're going to include it. It gets killed. That's what it does. <laughs> it does get killed. And you know, there's a moment earlier too where they talk about they're in a restaurant and someone is ordering a four-legged chicken or something like that. You get the sense it's in the background, like Blade Runner. That It's just about mood. It, it just sets the idea. And that is straight from the comic. There is a four-legged chicken in the background just drawn. They never call it out. Yeah, they also make a couple of references to electronic cars. He's trying to pretend like everything from the comic exists here, even if it doesn't make sense because they're changing the evil to Dr. Manhattan away from the squid. Right. And they could have changed a lot more about this end plan here, but... Be that as it may, they've got to all go to Antarctica to stop the bombs from going off, and they get there too late, half hour too late. Not even a half hour too late. It is one of the best best conceptions is like, I'm no comic book villain. Uh, you're not going to stop the bomb at one second to go. I did it 30 minutes ago. Yeah. We've seen monologuing so much. And James Bond, too. It's not just comic books. But, yeah, so often the evil villain tells you what he's going to do before he does it, thus allowing the character to stop him. Here, it has already happened. It, and it's such a great reveal in the comic. But here, this is so talky. Like, they try to put in some 300-style fighting. But it's Adrian, who acting is not good here. Who is this? Matthew Good? Not good. Oh, he's not good. No, he is awful. He is actually a very good actor, but not in this movie. But not here. And yeah, it's just him monologuing with some punches thrown in between. And it like, there are words being said. I don't feel them. I'm bored. Just to be clear, he's so smart, he can anticipate where you're going to punch so he can avoid it. Is that what happens? I just thought he was the world's greatest fighter, world's smartest man. He's basically... World's death says Machina. Yeah, I <laughs> I thought his skill was his his cleverness. I didn't think he had super martial arts prowess. Well, at least in the comic, he has reached the peak of physical and mental ability, yeah. That's right. He has some, some gymnastics routine on television at some point in that comic book. But, okay, whatever. All right. Well, that's what it is. I mean... Lori's gonna pull a gun out at him. She's gonna show up with John. He's just, John's decided to try to save the world. They show up too late. Lori pulls a gun out on him. And, like, he catches the bullet. And there's this great moment in the comic, like, where they set that up. Like, they're like, how did you know 
the assassin wasn't going to shoot at you first. And he's like, well, if he did, I guess I would have had to learn to catch a bullet. They're like, he can't really do that, can he? Like, here, though, he just catches it. Like, it's out of the blue. Like, I do feel like there's neat little things you could have set up where I feel like they, they're they like, crap, you got to start cutting things out now to try to <laughs> wrap this up. I felt like they wanted to give Lori something to do because out of all of them, she has never proved her worth for anything, really. She isn't done anything that matters she's apparently a really good lay i assume that she's going to get the kill shot in she doesn't manhattan gets vaporized in the machine she fires a gun ozymandias catches it and ha 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 there's nothing they can do the world's already kind of destroyed and like that's the weird thing they never give up they keep fighting like john you know reconstructs himself and gets big like giant size and tries to grab bite but like rorschach and night owl keep throwing punches and keep getting their butts kicked i kind of like what dr manhattan does here that he gets vaporized and he's like well that's the first trick i learned and the world's smartest man is no more threat to me than the world's smartest termite i like that stuff he does and i understand that the reason the fighting keeps going after it's too late is mostly out of frustration like they're just so torn apart by what happened that they're taking it out on him. The fact that he can dodge every punch so effectively, I didn't quite get that either, but all right. The, I'm more focused on Rorschach and the fact that he's going to tell everybody, <laughs> and Dr. Manhattan has a change of heart. He goes from attacking Adrian to going, well, shit, Adrian has a point. Yeah, again, Jackie Earl Haley gets to do some emoting, something that doesn't happen from a lot of the characters in this film. And I think it's a powerful moment. He pulls his mask off and he's yelling at Dr. Manhattan, do it, do it, kill me, you know, say to kill him because he will not compromise. He will go and tell the truth. I, I do wonder if at that moment, does Rorschach even think he needs to compromise? And so that's why he's begging for death. It, it's a great moment by that actor. I always took it as he was a little bit afraid of death and the standing there waiting was killing him. Whereas to Manhattan, all time's the same. So whether I kill you now mm. or a little from now, it doesn't matter to me. And like, he needs a reminder. Hey, kill me now. Don't make me just stand here and wait. Yeah. I just assumed he would not be afraid of death. Yeah. It's a weird moment because uh, again, we're trying to perceive these guys as heroes. And of course, that's the point is that this is a world post-superhero. There's nothing that they can do to be heroic. So Night Owl beating on Ozymandias, it does look impotent. <laughs> he is back to being that character. And uh, I, I mean, I like that as an irony. And I, I like the fact that, yeah, the, the character if not rooting for, at least the one that has brought them all together, to, the one to figure things out, is now having to be sacrificed because he knows the truth and won't stay quiet. I mean, yeah, these are ironic moments. These are powerful in the conception that we have superheroes we cannot root for. And I guess I just wish that it felt more ironic in this moment. Yeah, having Night Owl, like watching... Dr. Manhattan zap Rorschach and being no and falling to his knee. Ugh, that's the worst. Come on. You're going to go to that trope? Well, if you're doing a superhero movie that's postmodern, you'd have to, right? No, because they're <laughs> doing that sincerely. There is no irony in that motion. I like the fact that he turned into an ink blot at the uh, blood on the snow. That would seem like a fitting end for him. But he gets the last laugh. I mean, we think Rorschach loses here. But he actually, you know, he's been doing a lot of voiceover, narrating in a diary, 
And that diary is going to end up at the conservative rag that he always patronizes that is going to print the truth, presumably. But will anyone believe it? Coming from that magazine. It will sow the seeds of doubt, which is all the point is, is that with doubt, with a difference of opinion, it will eventually escalate again. They will need new superheroes. Uh, the world will go back to this state. It will constantly fluctuate. The idea of a utopia is, of course, impossible, and, and this movie acknowledges that. Well, is a recommend impossible? It's kind of sounding that way. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Watchmen? Jacob. I don't know if this is a compliment. It's not the disaster <laughs> that I thought it would be. And a lot of people expected. I mean, just there were people just mocking, oh, this is going to be Zack Snyder doing this. So you're going to have like, you know, Ozymandias isn't going to give that I did it 30 minutes ago speech. Like they're going to treat him as a typical bad guy and and stop him and just do those boring old tropes. So the fact that they didn't do that. Like, it's not a conventional superhero film. I guess that's a plus. The problem is, though, I feel sorry for Zack Snyder. This just isn't the director for this project. Like, I could feel him trying. His All his brain cells are firing. And I know I've been critical of him on some other films. But I, I just feel bad for him for even trying this. Like, I think he gave it a sincere go. But this is not how you handle uh, work of this complexity. And even if... I enjoyed seeing pages from the book put into motion on the screen. What I get from the actors here, well, I don't get anything I did from most of them. I don't get any emotion. It, I feel like Dr. Manhattan losing interest in humanity as I watch these humans on the screen. It's just dull what it comes down to. There has very little impact. And so it's not awful. It's an interesting failure, but it's a failure nonetheless. It's a weak not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I mean, I've already been on record here saying... That if you try to take things like this, if you try to just shoot James Joyce's Ulysses or Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow or, or Alan Moore's Watchmen, if you just try to shoot them as they appear on page, you will fail. It is definitely a failure. The question is, is it an admirable one? Can you enjoy watching it? I oftentimes like watching movies with ambition, with pretension. I mean, this movie has a lot of pretension. I think that's a good thing. I think that's an admirable thing that, yeah, they didn't dumb down more. They didn't change it so that it will patronize a lowest common denominator audience, but they didn't help them appreciate what's good about it either. And so what are we left with? We're left with a lot of cool-looking, emotionally distancing strangeness, oddity, where, you know, we're watching characters we don't really care about work out existential problems. Is that like Blade Runner? I like Blade Runner a whole lot more than I like this movie. And, I, you know, I feel like it's worth watching, particularly if you're a fan of the comic, but to me, a green arrow is an endorsement. It's not saying you should see it. It's saying that seeing it will be a positive experience. I feel like a lot of people should see this because you can learn a lot from failure. But it is a failure. And uh, I feel like this is a lesson in why you don't try to do a straight adaptation of complicated postmodern literature. And so, yeah, it's a red arrow, but a mild one. I mean, again, a failure I enjoyed is a better than, you know, a movie that has no artistic merit or ambition. So is the problem Snyder? The problem is the adaptation. The problem is, is at the end of the day, it has yet to be conceived as a movie. It was a moving comic book. 
I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with moving comic books. We talked about those motion comics that they put out, and some of them are actually very enjoyable. But they're still often abridged in some way. This is also abridged. I find myself in a weird position with this, though. The first time I watched it back in 2009, same year it went in theaters, it was out on video on demand, I found this to be the most uninteresting, boring, stylistic slog that I could recall seeing in a long time. I walked away from the movie in the middle for a while, then I'm like, ah, I paid like $14 to rent this, so I'm gonna finish it. Remember when pay-per-view costs that much for new movies? And I just never looked back and thought, wow, I really... Perhaps I hate this film, but at the very least, I really don't like this film. But I came back to it, and I watched the theatrical cut first, and I was like, yep, I remember why I didn't like it, but I had a few more cuts to watch and some more bonus features. And then I watched the director's cut, and I was like, you know, there's stuff here I do like. The stylish look, the music, if it is obvious and on the nose, still good music, you know? I bought the soundtrack. I think I was missing like a few of the songs and it was cheap on Amazon. So I got the soundtrack and I found myself really liking the Rorschach character. Then I watched it a third time and I'm like, you know, there's quite a bit here I'm really enjoying. So if you have to watch a film three or four times to really even understand what's fully going on and to get all the character motivations, because every question you asked, the answer is in here but it's a dropped line, it's not given the attention it deserves, be it character motivations, and that's a major problem when it's a character motivation that's just missing, or if it's a minor plot point, it's all in there. And so, from my forced ingestion of this film over the past three months, I've come to like it. I actually have gone from really disliking Watchmen on the first two viewings to really liking it. Although, perhaps it was the theatrical cut that I didn't like, and I really, really disliked the ultimate cut. But that director's cut found a sweet spot for me. But if you have to watch a film that often to just even get what's going on, I don't think I can recommend it. So I think this is going to go into the category of movies I like, but I can't recommend it. So, Red Arrow. (laughs) Really? I feel like if you like a movie, you can Green Arrow it. No, no, I I like Howard the Duck, but I can't tell you to watch it. A recommend is, should you watch it? (laughs) I red arrowed Howard the Duck, and I have to red arrow this. I think that it's not worth putting the 10 hours in that you need to to fully get it. But now that I've put that 10 hours in, I kind of like it. (laughs) I think I get what you're saying. Well, good art is worth whatever effort it takes to appreciate it. And I guess what I would go to is like Blade Runner. There's a lot that's underdeveloped in that movie as well. But there is a story and a drive and a pull that keeps you along. Yeah, I mean, I could understand Blade Runner on my first watching when I was 15 years old. This, no. I just have no investment. And that's what I want to make clear here, is I just don't care what happens. It's not that I can't understand it. I just don't care about it. Because they haven't made me want to invest in this world. And yet, what what I find interesting, like, I thought when this came out, after I saw it, I'm like, this is going to be a forgotten film. Like, in 2016, you know, now Plane's going to review Watchmen. You're going to be like, oh yeah, they made a Watchmen movie, didn't they? Huh, I totally forgot about that. But I do feel like this, if any of us liked it, could have been in our underrated movies we recommend book. Like, I do feel like this film has gotten a following since coming out on 
DVD. Maybe because of that director's cut. Who knows? Maybe because of the hundreds of listeners who are disappointed that this movie they've asked us to review for so long got three red arrows. I know there's a lot of people that do like it. Because it's not a bad movie, but it's not a satisfying one either. I mean, what's obnoxious about our uh, recommend system is it's binary. We're either saying see it or don't see it. It's black or white. It's the Rorschach recommend system. Right. Exactly. I can recognize there are many great things here. And if you want to see it, I won't try to stop you. I, I think that there's things here to appreciate and like. But ultimately, if I want to sit down and enjoy a movie, this is not one I can do. No, this is an interesting school lesson about filmmaking. Oh, no, it's an enjoyable film. There is stuff here to enjoy on a purely visceral level. Very few. There's stuff here to enjoy on a visual level. There's stuff here to enjoy on an acting level from two of them. And there's something to enjoy here from just a storytelling angle. And I think if you want to know what The Watchmen is about and you don't want to read the world's most dense comic book, this is a way to get that. I guess I just, I can't understand why the action here is not going to excite you. The mystery, I don't even know some of the answers to. I I can't think about in, in any way uh, for genre filmmaking uh, this is satisfying. I can't think of one thing that actually feels complete about it. The action scenes work? The action scenes don't work because we're not like, you're like fist pumping? But Stuart, you, you gotta think music videos. <laughs> this comes from a music video guy, music video generation. If little snippets work here and there and they look cool, then I, I guess people could claim it's successful. Hey, I found stuff to cling to in it. The only time that there's any excitement to the fight is when Rorschach is getting revenge. I can't think of any other fight where there are stakes where I'm wanting one character to win or worried that they won't. I don't have to want somebody to win to enjoy a good fight. I mean, maybe it's because I like some MMA and I don't care who's fighting. I just like watching the fight. But that opening fight, I find to be really gripping, even if I don't know who's fighting who or why. I think that must be a genetic difference between us, is that I cannot care about a fight that I have no investment in. Well, next week we're going to be looking at a fight that hopefully we do have investment in. Yes, another fight. More Zack Snyder and more versus. Yeah, I, I I wonder who I'll be rooting for. Will it be Batman, Superman, or for the projector to break down? Yeah, I don't know. This one feels weird to me. I, I can honestly say I know that there's some burblings underneath the surface that it's this big disaster waiting to happen and yet i remember that being spread about fantastic four i remember well that was actually right i don't think it was <laughs> i'm gonna cross my fingers and hope for the best i think that i might like it i'm actually optimistic i'm looking forward to seeing the next iteration of batman the one thing i'm hearing universally is that affleck is the best part so that's a big turnaround from the first time that he was cast. It happens with all the Batman, I guess. Yeah, it's not what I remember thinking about Daredevil. <laughs> but we will find out next week. And before we go, this is our last film that we actually announced late last year when we announced our 2016 lineup. And it has snuck up on me that... Our website no longer said even Batman versus Superman. We think our <laughs> listeners assume we're doing that next week. We're doing it. 
Yeah, I think we should make some stuff official on what we're doing. If you've been following our website over the past few days, I've been updating it with new movies. And if you haven't, here's what we're going to be covering over the next few months. We are going to keep doing some DC comics. We got Batman v Superman, the backdoor second entry in the DC movie universe series. We didn't know we were starting with Man of Steel. (laughs) Wonder if Warner Brothers did. I guess we'll talk about that with Batman v Superman. It's going to be a long show. And then, yeah, I I don't know that this was totally a DC property, but it just felt like we should do it. The spirit. And it's a two-parter, guys. I know everyone's thinking, oh, no, not that black and white Frank Miller thing. Yes, but before that, (laughs) we get to do a TV movie again. Because in 1987, the guy that started Flash Gordon tried to make it work on ABC. And so we're going to do both. Yeah, Ted Gentle DC series. And then after the two spirit, gonna do one of my favorite comics, American Splendor. Oh, yeah. Which is not about superheroes at all. It's a biography. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. We're, we're gonna do like an underground zine. That's kind of fun. Yeah, Academy Award nominated movie. It's as DC related as Jacob wanted it to be to get us to review it. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. And then something that a lot of people have been saying they've wanted is going to happen. A return to Stephen King, for a little bit anyway. We're going to get back to a couple books that were next. If you recall, we've been going through his repertoire in publication order, starting with Carrie a few years back. And now we've finally reached Cujo and, published under a pseudonym, but still Stephen King, The Running Man. And I should add a note here that... For those who have been following along at Books and Nachos or tapping me on the shoulder and asking where the next Books and Nachos is, that actually happened recently. (laughs) Somebody physically tapped me on the shoulder and I didn't know them. I hope that it was in a public place and not in your home. (laughs) It was indeed. It was at a convention. But we're going to be spending the summer doing Stephen King. We're not going to have Cujo out in time for the Cujo movie review, but we are going to get Dead Zone, Firestarter, Roadwork, Dance Macabre, Cujo, and Running Man this summer so that by the time fall starts coming and kids are back to school, we're all caught up and we can do even more King in the fall. So we're doing a couple King movies here this spring, but a lot of King on Books and Nachos Dead Zone will be out within the next two weeks. Great, great news. And then, of course, we start getting into summer, believe it or not. I can't believe it, but we get sort of the big blockbusters again. Captain America is going to war. Uh, He's battling Iron Man, I guess. Civil War. Really, this is Avengers 3, right? (laughs) There's so many characters. Uh, Avengers 2.5, Iron Man 4, (laughs) Captain America 3. Spider-Man returns to Marvel. Black Panther 1, yeah. (laughs) I can't wait for this movie. I'm psyched for this movie. Each trailer makes it look better. I've even spoken very briefly with the Russos about it. They found out that Marjorie was Team Cap and me Team Iron Man, and they just said, I'm going to have a very interesting date night that time. Yeah, I hear there's going to be casualties and, you know, people come back from the dead. It's the soap opera world after all. But yeah, I'm interested to see where it all falls. And uh, they, the Russos did deliver my very favorite Marvel. So yeah, I'm excited about this one. And then we're going to do a couple other movies. Let's face it, sometimes we just give up. In fact, it was a recent headline that Ron Perlman said he doesn't think Hellboy 3 will ever happen. <laughs> 
Oh, tear. I don't think it will either as much as I want it to. So we're going to fill a couple of non-theatrical comic book weeks with Hellboy and Hellboy 2 going back to one of my favorite directors, Del Toro. Yeah, it seemed like uh, we had a two-week gap between X-Men Apocalypse and Civil War, and I was like, well, give me a comic book property. We're out of DC. We're out of Marvel. This seemed to be the one that everyone was most excited about. And then we get to the summer, where we got lots of theatrical releases. We got a lot of theatrical, a lot of series picking up. X-Men Apocalypse... Turtles 2, whatever they're calling it, Rocksteady and Bebop Party on. Let me just assuage the fears of our Facebook and Twitter fans. We postulated the idea, both among ourselves and with you listeners, of us not picking up some of the series that one or more of us wasn't entirely enthused about. But we will be doing TMNT 2, Conjuring 2. (laughs) And yes, that is a gun loaded to my head right now. Yeah, you got to do both of them. And I have the gun pointed at Arnie's head for Conjuring 2 the next week. It really was like a Tarantino-esque Mexican standoff (laughs) of who would pull the trigger. Uh, Because there's no way TMNT or Conjuring was going to go down without both taking a fall. (laughs) I was like, the one that has to go is Turtles. And you were like, no, the one that has to go is Conjuring. Uh, So they're not going anywhere. We're going to the movie theaters. We're paying the dollars. And we're... We're going to see them and give you our uh, as unbiased as possible opinion about movies that I can't say we're enthused about, but we know you are. So we'll be there. And if after we review them, you change your mind, let us know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm willing to hear an end to Turtles at any given point. (laughs) (laughs) And I would be good leaving behind Blumhouse. And then we've got lots more planned. You'll find out what as we get closer. Of course, Star Trek, Suicide Squad. And the donation series, which we're announcing next week on Batman vs. Superman. So another good reason to tune in. Yeah, I just think there's going to be big trouble. Try to think of a clever way to say this. As you're going through the labyrinth of... (laughs) Please stop. (laughs) To get to your space camp. To hang out with some critters to watch. Yes. They'll never know. Actually, they will never know what we're talking about. But they'll know what some of those movies are. Yeah, don't be a creep, Jacob. (laughs) Only at night, I'm a creep. But we will find out next week. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Kareem! Okay, guys, mission accomplished. <laughs> Good work, Brother Wizard. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Bravo, Justice League, bravo, a virtuoso performance. But I want you to keep one thing in mind about the weather. It can change at any moment. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another DC Comics film, featuring all the way through a weekend of release review of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Now, if you begin to feel an intense and crushing feeling of religious terror at the concept, don't be alarmed. That indicates only that you are still sane.
And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss the DC movies with other listeners. Have they talked you into joining us yet? And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other comic book films, such as Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, The Avengers, X-Men, The Punisher, and Fantastic Four. What is it? The future, gentlemen. The future. You can also listen to our reviews of other movie series, including The Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, and many more. Only the best of the best come here. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. You know, I like to go watch movies. You know, I I like to watch long movies because, you know, I run around all day. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated movies we recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. We don't do this thing because it's permitted. We do it because we have to. We do it because we're compelled. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. We've got to tell the others. There's no time. Oh, yes, there is. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Can't spend your life in front of a computer, Doris. You know, it's a lot safer. Yeah, well, you know, fighting for truth, justice, and the American way just isn't helping my bank account, you know? Support from listeners like you. Help keep Now Playing operating. The watchdog group of nuclear scientists has moved the doomsday clock to two minutes until midnight. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Give them the money, Batman. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. You boys look nice in your underwear. Now Playing's DC Teams retrospective series is edited by Heath and Arnie. God doesn't make the world this way. We do. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Oh, I know. He talks funny. (laughs) Now Playing is not affiliated with DC Comics or Warner Brothers Pictures. DC Comics and all that the DC Universe contains are copyright and trademark Warner Brothers Entertainment, and no infringement is intended. Where do you see what I'm going to do to you when I get you back to the Batcave? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. It's a joke. It's all a joke. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. You don't think that's a little paranoid? That's what they say about me now. Paranoid. Home voyage. Nothing ends. Nothing ever ends. Superheroes! Disperse!
the Watchmen in this film. Oh, broke up. I still like it better. <laughs> Every time you growl, I'm going to say it was the right choice. <laughs> I've seen a lot more Patrick Wilson than I've ever seen Will Arnett. So I, I don't really know Will Arnett. <laughs> Come on. Think about that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles by Michael Bay. Yeah, I won't. <laughs> hey, that was pretty dramatic. <laughs> hmm. Okay. She was pushed into heroics by her mother, and then she was pushed in with, doc- with Dr. John. I like the fact that he turned into an ink blot, at the, uh, blood uh, on the snow. That would seem like a fitting end for him. I don't know if... What did you see, Stuart? I saw the Dark Overlord. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Still good music, you know? I bought the soundtrack. Although I already owned most of it, I didn't order own it in that order. Stop judging me. Make a playlist. Stop judging me! <laughs> I know I could make a playlist. I, I think I was missing like a few of the songs, and it was cheap on Amazon. Let's hold off on the donation series, but let's do a pickup just on what's not the donation series. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. It's not um, the just, donation series, okay? Yeah, just the other stuff we're doing. Uh, yeah, so people that aren't going oh, to pay oh, okay. us. <laughs> I get what know, you're saying. I'm like. Can know about Spirit and American Splendor. Ghoulies, that is not our donation series. Just start naming franchises <laughs> that are not. I was confused by your wording. I know you love The Godfather. <laughs> well, you're not going to get Not the donation series. <laughs> I'm going to make you an offer that I refuse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. You know, we had a two-week gap in between X-Men... Uh, what's it called? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Yeah, I was like, Abomination? What the hell is the thing called? <laughs> I was like, well, give me a comic book property. We're out of DC. We're out of Marvel. This seemed to be the one that everyone was most excited about. Hellboy's crossed over with Batman for an issue or two. <laughs> we could call it DC, maybe. <laughs> so has Spawn. Do we need to do Spawn? Oh, uh, okay. I take it back. Well, I hear they're working on a new theatrical, so I think if we ever do Spawn, it'll be Spawned at that point in time. Judge Dredd fights Batman a lot. Do we do Dredd? We could do, yeah, we should do Judge Dredd. Yeah, that that Stallone one was awesome. Rob Schneider, Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> so much to talk about with that Stallone one. Not kidding. Yeah, not not excited about that, but uh, so anyway. Hellboy, right? <laughs> yeah, Hellboy. Hellboy. Yes. 